I'm right, guessing it's going to be about 10 minutes into the episode before somebody brings up an Owen Pelly Python and we drift off and start talking about that whole thing for at least Man, 20 you minutes. you ruined my intro. Shit! <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. All right, welcome to Moralia Python Radio. And um, we had such a good conversation last week talking about the difficult uh, to breed uh, species, um, whether it be pythons, colubrids, colubrids, whatever you want to call them. It's colubrids. <laughs> okay, it's col- oh, that's colubrids. right. I'm with Owen, I have to say. Bar, it is colubrid. Right? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, just these species that, um, you know, uh, with, with all the, uh, the talk of uh, importation being shut down, um, just getting them in and trying to establish them so that we don't lose them um, for the future, for the future of the hobby and whatnot. So um, this is part two. So the first <laughs> week we talked to Scott Borden, but this week we have our Owen Pelly brother himself, <laughs> Keith McPeak. <laughs> Have I have I thanked you guys recently for taking me to Australia? Not recently. It's been at least twenty four hours. Uh, so, Owen yeah. <laughs> oh, Pelly's, huh, man? Dude, it's, you know? it's, 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 it's I the problem is, is I think Keith fell in love with the species, and like now, every once so in a while, Keith is like, Gavin's. Gavin's been telling me some great things. I'm like, you've been talking to Gavin about Owen Pelly's again? And it's just all these pictures that Keith just gives us. We're like, all right, that is interesting. It's like, I think if they were here, Keith would already have a pair. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you, it kind of fits into the topic for tonight for sure, too. Doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They're definitely a, uh, uh, you know, well, I mean, Gavin briefly, I mean, just about how, you know, the struggles that he had probably similar to what you're going through with, uh, with Mull and I, I think, uh, you kind of, you know, <laughs> bonded over hard to breed pythons, if you will, over crocodile it, parm. <laughs> it was, you know, you know what they say? Misery, misery loves, loves company. company you know? <laughs> well, that's the funniest thing. He, he perked up at, hearing that you work with Bull and I and you perked up at, Bre- at, at, at Owen Pelly's and the two of you were just going back and forth on what you could possibly do because in my opinion they're they've got to be close like at least in just care and other things like that but what I found what I found the most insightful about Gavin's whole thing with the Owen Pelly's is that he will pay a guy to bring him the dead birds from the area where the, of like the one dove or whatever that these things eat. And right. he'll feed them that because he just, why, why try to make them eat like a, a European rat or something like that? He's just like, screw it. Give me the, give me the bird that they eat in the wild. Yeah. Eat that. So that's what right. I found really insightful with that whole thing. I, I think that's all part of, how we all evolve as keepers and we go through different stages of being keepers, you know, and I always talk about when we were all kids and you'd catch that garter snake and put it in a 10 gallon tank and just watch it devour an earthworm. And we were fascinated by like how the snake would grab it and eat it. And, you know, we'd run to catch another worm to put it in there to watch it do. And it wasn't, it wasn't anything morbid. It was just fascinating watching that animal do that thing. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, we grow up and then you get sucked into the, the whole, you know, 
what do I want to say? Like not breeding for more. So I don't want to say that, but the whole thing breeding to try to create something new, a new look and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think you go through that for quite a while as a keeper. And then it seems like, like you go back to the basics and, and just look at like, it doesn't matter the value. It doesn't even matter what it looks like. It, things that intrigue you are things that are really interesting to observe in captivity or something that nobody else is doing and not because it's worth money, just because nobody else is doing it and you want to try to figure it out, you know? Yeah. And I think that kind of fits into, um, you know, propagating species that are hard to breed in captivity for future generations to enjoy, you know, for sure. Is that pretty much where your collection's at currently? Because, I mean, you know, we you had one of the largest collections of, you know, short tails and blood pythons and stuff like that, and then now you're pretty much on to some morph projects but it looks like it looks like you're just getting stuff that appeals to you you know you you have two really good looking exactly. romas some blackheads that i want to clock you on the head and take from you <laughs> um you even got me looking at hog island bows going goddamn and that's hard yeah ask eric yeah <laughs> so. yeah yeah so yeah right now i'm i'm just working with stuff that i enjoy like mm. Like I did the morph thing, and I did the breeding thing, and I think you know, it's so competitive to stay in that game and to to stay ahead of the next guy and to stay relevant and and you know you start losing sight of why. At least I did. I'm not saying everybody does, but you do start losing sight of why you were in this hobby and really enjoyed it in the first place. And like I said, you know, like bloods and short tails will always be in my blood, and if I had you know, acquired even one more, I would need 50 more because that just gets sucked right back into it, you know? <laughs> so I enjoy them through Matt now, you know, and, and a couple other friends of mine. But, yeah, so now, like, I went back to, like, emeralds. Like, my experience with emerald tree bows in the past was horrific because he only had imported animals back in the, mm. you know, late 80s, early 90s, and nobody was really breeding them. It was very rare when they did and they went so quick, you never had a shot at them. And, you know, I, I dealt with prolapses and the regurges and all the other problems we had with them back then. So after I did the whole thing with that, I wanted to go back to to breeding them in captivity and be successful with them and just crack the code for me on how to be successful with them, you know? Yeah. Um, and not all, you know, a lot of people are gravitating towards the basins. Not a lot of, you know, serious keepers work with emeralds. You know, you can lay, name most of them on your two hands who really work with the northerns. And, you know, so I've gravitated to them more than the basins. Um, and yeah, it was just a species that I would like to see established because if they do shut the doors um, on them, um, it, I think a species that would be very, good to keep for a long time in captivity for future generations to see and work with and understand and yeah. all that kind of stuff. You know? Well, it's like, cause that would be the thing where um, they'd shut the doors, but everyone's got all the, the basins and all the other stuff, but nobody took the time to establish the other ones because that's not what everybody right. was working on. And that's when all of a sudden somebody's like, Oh crap. Like, you know, we forgot one. And then that becomes, either popular or that becomes the one that we don't have in U.S. herpticulture and it sucks. Right. Exactly. You know, yep. That would be exactly. like, having... and, and 
northern white lips and not southern white lips or vice versa. I'd die. I would <laughs> die. Yeah. I go to that, Indo. That's what I like about Rob Stone's collection. Like he just has these obscure species that <laughs> you know are real hard to keep and breed and you know, he doesn't care if they're, you know, five dollars a piece or five thousand dollars a piece. He gets what he likes and he works with it and it's something tough that a lot of people can't do and like yeah. I, I just like watching him take care of his collection for the two days that I was out there visiting with him before we went to Australia. Yeah. It was so cool to see how he, you know, dissects what they're doing and like sees these little things that I don't see because he is so in tune with those animals and those are species Rob's working with species that, you know, for sure aren't in mainstream keeping. And if everything were to shut down and people started looking more for those species, he'd be one of the first guys to go to because he understands them so well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Up till this point, Keith, what was the, the hardest species that you worked with to, to, to breed in captivity? What's the one that gave you the, the toughest go? Besides bull, um, not them. Yeah, no, I was no, just no, going to no, say, forget them. <laughs> we all know that story. Um, I, I'm just. Well, as far as boas go, um, I'm going to have to say, believe it or not, rainbow boas. No shit. Um, yeah, yeah. I was breeding Sanzinia and all these other things, you know. <laughs> right. And rainbow boas, I could I could get them breed to breed, and I would get them to drop and everything, but I I never had viable babies like they I, they would either always slug out on me or I would get a litter of stillborn and that I, I was breeding doom rolls and like I say Sanzinia and all these other boa species but for some reason I never did well with uh, rainbow boas but they themselves I, I did fantastic with they were healthy animals they grew they everything was great you know they bred just like I figured they ovulated they did everything but I could never get viable litters out of them and uh, I never did really. Uh, that probably now you're talking about it'll be one I want to go back to just to do it. Oh, see, now we know? mentioned it. Yeah, it's done now. <laughs> we got a guy. Yeah. We got a guy. Yeah, we do yeah. a guy. We that, do have uh, a guy. <laughs> that is big yeah. into Riley. Riley, you send him yeah. things. Yeah. Yes. So. Dear Riley. Yeah. Dear Riley, send Boas to Keith. Love so, MPR. <laughs> I'm just going to, I, you know, this just kind of fascinated me, fascinated me today. And it, it gets me thinking and gets my, my brain turning on, like, you know, trying to think outside the box with these type of species. And because to me, the puzzle is, is part of the most exciting thing about the whole, you know, it, it's like, it's like, it's sort of what you were saying earlier, Keith, like, you know, when we were kids, we were watching the garter snake eating the earthworm in the cage. That's part of a behavior that we're watching. And up until that point, that's sort of what we, I guess, a behavior that we could control. Like we, every time we would throw a worm in there, you're going to get the result of it eating, you know? So you're seeing that behavior, what it does, it hunts, whatever the case would be. And then I guess right. just as a keeper, as I've, as I've progressed through the years, it then turns into, okay, well, let's see this other form of behavior, a.k.a. breeding, um, you know, and, and it's sort of like seeing the whole life cycle of the animal from beginning to end. Um, and I saw this, I, I, I hate to say that, I don't know who it was that posted it, and I was just kind of flipping through Facebook, but I saw this Woma python, mm. and it was somebody in Australia, and they had it in a cage, and in the cage, they had some kind of sand mixture. It wasn't like, it didn't look like it, it, like the way that it was getting pushed around, it almost looked like the consistency of like wet sand. Okay. But I saw a wild woma python do this, but I've never seen a captive woma python do this. 
and it was sort of like curving its head around, right, to make like a J-shape type of thing, and excavating the sand, like making a burrow or a hole, like it was like digging it out with its head, which was like, it just blew my mind, I was watching it for like, I just kept watching the video over and over again, like, wow, you know, by keeping this animal, you know, on paper or something like that, not that there's anything wrong with that, but you would never be able to uh, see that behavior, so to speak. And I'm replacing the, the substrate in my Woma's hide boxes tomorrow. Like I, I tried I'm, to share it with you guys, but it would it what the hell from the group. But I'm gonna try to see if I can find it, like screen, like video record my screen and then send it to you guys so you can you can check it I'm out. But, fill those things with sand. Are you kidding like, me? That makes me think, like if Woma pythons were difficult to breed, would that digging the burrow be part of? the process exactly. in order for it to, you know, ovulate and lay eggs. You know, I think of right. monitors That's... and aren't they big time into like the monitors nests? are huge. And if she, if she can't nest properly, um, she won't lay the eggs and she'll egg bound or reabsorb. And the funny thing is, is that you can build a monitor, the most perfect nest ever. She won't do it. And where these guys seem to have luck is they give them boxes where they just fill it with dirt and pack it in there so tight and let her dig it out. Right. And then and then once once she digs it out, then she'll go in there and lay the eggs. But like it, it, it's it's like you could put a bin in there with a monitor cage and she didn't want that. So they just put in a box of like we're talking like jam packed, like you could stand on it, dirt and sand, and then she just digs it out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of behavior. Like, like I say, I think we might have even talked about this last time we were all together, but that's this kind of stuff. I think as you mature as a keeper, those are the kind of things that kind of fascinate you more is like animals' interesting behaviors, and you gravitate towards species that are going to exhibit those in captivity, and those are the kind of things that float your boat more than a brighter red or a whiter white on a snake or any of that kind of yeah. stuff. You're looking more for those kind of things. Like I remember my store eye when I bred those little monitors, like I thought it was insane that like clockwork, every time they laid eggs, like the main clutch would be down deep and they would leave one or two eggs like two, three inches higher so that if a predator was digging down and found that, like that may be a deterrent that they, you know, find those two eggs and they leave the rest of the eggs alone because they don't dig deeper down to the oh. bottom of the other eggs, you know. Like the little behaviors like that are what fascinate me. Even with the garter snake eating the earthworm, I didn't just <laughs> look at a garter snake eating an earthworm. I would watch how it would lift one side of its lips and walk up on the earthworm and then lift the other side of its lips and walk up. Like even little interesting things like that, until you see it when you're a little kid like that, you would, like it amazed me. I'm like, what is this animal doing? Why is it walking over the prey like that, you know? Right. And you start thinking about all the little details. Well, the teeth are holding it on this side as that one side moves deeper on the body. Then those teeth hold it as the next set of teeth go up on the body. Little things like that, you know, some people just look at a snake-eating worm and they don't think of all these little things going into the mechanics of that happening. And I just find that shit fascinating, you know? Yeah, yeah. That is cool. So, I don't know, well, like, what were some, uh, I mean, I guess you listened to the episode with Scott, like, what, what are some of your thoughts and, like, I mean, 
have you, you know, I know now you're working with Ball and I, you're working with the Emeralds, and you're working with, you know, actually, a Sanzinia. lot of breed species. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Sort of like, <laughs> um, well, that's the thing. Like, for me now, it's just for fun, you know? So, mm-hmm. so like, I'm not looking to to produce the next this or that or the, or the next thing. I just, it's just all for fun. But there's a lot, like Scott was touching on, like all you guys were touching on some fantastic little ideas for the whole episode. You know, I was just like, Oh shit, you know, that's true. Like what about this angle and that angle? On it? But, um, with the bull and I right now, there's so many things running through my mind in the current situation of the world. Cause think about it. Really, I'm not taking anything away from anybody, but really, nobody really knows how to breed these things yet. Even with how fantastic Frederick has done and Mark Spataro, with you know, they have the most consecutive um, fertile clutches and hatchings and everything than anybody else in the world, but they still don't even know what it is that they're doing. Like Frederick isn't able to reproduce it yet in this new house. He got a step mm. closer this year and I'm sure he'll get there. Right. But it tells you that there's not a clear cut formula yet. Like there is with so many other species we work with. It's still a lot of luck involved with breeding bull and eye in captivity. And if they shut the doors, if you think about how many are produced every year, if they do shut those doors, and we don't get better at this really quick, these animals will definitely not be around for future generations to enjoy, you know? And and I don't care about the value of the animal. It's just the beauty of the animal. The uniqueness of each species definitely is a little bit different in captivity. And Bull and I are definitely so different than so many other pythons just in how they interact with you themselves and interact with each other and, you know, just all the different little cues you give them in a cage that they're a super interesting species aside from their beauty that a lot of keepers in the future should have access to and be able to enjoy like we are today, you know? So I I, I always talk about even if I was able to breed, like most of the stuff I breed nowadays, it goes to friends and like, yeah, I try to recoup some of the cost, but I give it to them for what they can afford. And if they can't afford it, I give it to them, you know? And Bowl and I for me would be the same thing. I try to put them in people's hands that I think have a great shot, like Lawrence. Tell me Lawrence wouldn't be a great guy to get some bull and eyes in his hands yeah. to yeah. to work with, you know? Yeah. And, and and a lot of other people, like Chad, like, so I had a pair, you guys were talking a lot about Moluccans, and um, so I was messing with the Moluccans, and, you know, during my process trying to figure them out with only one pair, which is really hard to do with any species if you only have one pair, right. um, I wound up probably pushing the limits on my male and losing them. Um, and I had the female and, you know, she was great. And I had her for like another six months. And I'm like, you know, this will waste out of this female here. I'm not going to find another male. And I'm like, man, Chad is like family. I'm like, you know, call Chad up. Chad, you want this female? Cause Chad's done it before, you know? Uh-huh. So get that animal down to Chad, you know? And, and I, it, it, there's no even deal in it. Like I, if he sends a pair back down the road, great. But just get more of them in captivity. Send it to him and let him work with it. He was successful once. Let's see if he can do it again, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I think that kind of stuff, as you get more mature as a keeper and you're not worrying about, like you guys were talking about, so many people are worried about giving themselves a name today and all that kind of stuff. Yep. I think when you get older as a keeper, it's more, you go more back to the animals themselves and 
working with other people that have that same passion you do and passing things around and trying to create more and get them more out there, you know? Um, a lot of guys with the Jamaican bows are doing that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For me, you know, that whole, I got, I know it sounds like a broken record, but like. Do it. Do it. You know what I'm going to say. Do it. Australia really changed that. There it is. You know what I mean? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It changed the, I wish I had, I had, you know, $50,000 $50,000 that I could just revamp everything that I'm doing right now. And I have, I know it's right. a slow process that I'm, that I'm building up to and everything. But, um, but I, I'll give you an example. Like, like we did the show last week with Scott and here we are this week. And I, I decided that when we saw the Darwin carpet in the tree, I, I looked at the way that it was perching, right. And mm-hmm. how it was perching yeah. like on a couple different branches and kind of like sitting, not, not a chondro type of pose, where it's like looped no. around a branch, it was kind of like it was like sit- on a nest almost. Yeah, it was like yeah, sitting on the yeah. forks of stuff, right? Yeah, well, yep. yep. Crazy thing. I said, you know what? I'm going to do that in my diamond python cage, and I did that, and I sent you guys the picture of it. But like that snake has not left that spot. <laughs> like I don't right. know. And it basked before, but I don't know what the difference is now. That I, I can only imagine that it, maybe it's getting it's closer to the heat. I don't know. Maybe it's absorbing more heat through. I, I don't know. I, but maybe it just likes it. I mean, I put maybe in. Maybe it's comfortable. Maybe yeah. it makes them feel secure. And, yeah. And these are the things that I think about when you're trying to breed these hard to spe- breed species, especially like, you know, some of the scrubs or bull and I would kind of fit into this. I, I think even Gavin mentioned this when we were talking about um, Owen Pelly's that. They're very shy. They don't want to be. Like, mm. Wasn't Gavin saying that you can't touch them? Basically, he, he said <laughs> he had somebody. Season. He had somebody come by and handled one of his own pellies, and then apparently didn't eat for like months, months and months. And that was just like one day or something like that. One afternoon, he's like, they don't, they don't like it. They don't like being handled. They don't like being touched. Um, he says that this. I think you remember saying something like about how. The ones that are born in captivity are a little bit easier, but those ones that he got from the wild, they don't they don't like it. And you can kind of understand that where if the animal's not comfortable. It's not going to breed. It's not going to do what it naturally does. I would think so. just like Bo and I, they're kind of spending the majority of their time hiding away. Yeah, you're not they're trying to beat. <laughs> they, don't but they're see on opposite it. Opposite <laughs> ends of the spectrum. Bo and I are trying to beat the cold, and Owen Pelly's are trying to beat the heat. True. I, uh, yeah, I haven't they, seen they my both have a, They both have such an extreme weather um, element to deal with, um, but I think they deal with it in the same fashion pretty much. It's just one's dealing with the cold and one's dealing with the heat, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's like trying to figure out the, the, the piece of the pot. I mean, I know we talked about um, – Ryan Young a bunch. Um, mm-hmm. He's another one. I think if he had Bull and I, he'd probably be able to crack that code too. You know, he's uh, right. He's, he's the Python guru over there. I, mean, I don't know why he hasn't. I don't know why he hasn't leapt into those. It's just they think price. space. <laughs> I mean, space snake price. Reader. It's not like he has tons of money to just go buy. I don't know, man. He sells that whole clutch of blackface white lips. That'll cover some. They'll cover some freaking Bull and I. You know, well, listen. If, uh, uh, that, that's a perfect example right there. That if if I breed these things, that would be a person I would hit up and say, "Hey, do you want a pair of these things? Let's see what yeah. you can do with them." You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. There's no doubt. I, it, it, 
I got to I got to just touch on like I do get concerned with animals from the wild mm. that aren't produced in captivity that start acquiring these huge price tags. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because you wonder what that is going to do really to that animal in its wild state um, and what that could potentially mean for them stopping importation into the country when you start putting crazy price tags on these animals that are still coming from the wild. To me, it's like I, I, I put it towards like rhino horns, you know, and what people do will do for a rhino horn to, to mm. collect that and you start putting crazy numbers on bull and I and, and you do have to get concerned with what the repercussions are for them in the wild, which is another reason why like I really like want to breed these things in captivity. And it's not because they have a big price tag on them now. It's to hopefully make that go away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. And and hopefully, you know, start I don't know. It's scary times for me with them because this is something I really, really want to do, and they're getting harder and harder to come by, and they're yeah. getting harder and harder to come by without putting a your house on, you know, getting a, a mortgage. mortgage for the yeah. damn thing. You can always sell and, that um, beautiful, beautiful car you have in the garage there. <laughs> yeah, I could. I definitely could. And I, I could. I would. I won't. <laughs> It probably would come to that. Oh, but, God, you no. know, we need more people looking for species like that and Malukin and everything else, not to have them for a status symbol, but to really try to get them and try to do something with them. So, like I say, future generations can enjoy them. And I want my grandson to be able to be playing with these things when he's, you know, sure. in his teens, in his 20s, after he's done chasing girls. Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> When do you think a snake species becomes a status symbol? Because, you know, it, 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 I, it's got to be a bunch of factors. Like, price has got to be a factor. And then the overall look of the animal. Because I've seen, there are some rare snakes out there that are just butt ugly that nobody cares about. Um, so it's got to be well, a mixture. think about it. Oh, oh right. and you got a great point right there. Think about yep. Owen Pelly Python. Would they turn the heads of anybody that's not an experienced keeper that doesn't understand what that animal is? Those are the only people's heads that they turn. They don't turn the heads of people that are into the flash right now. You know what I mean? And I hate that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, I know. It's almost like it became like, I can't tell you. Like, we would talk about Owen Pelly pythons, and people would be like, what? What are you, what are you talking yeah. about? You know? Yeah. And, and it's like, okay. We go, we find them, then, you know, a couple other people find them. And then all of a sudden now, it's like, I can't tell you how many people are telling me, oh, I want Owen Pelly's, our own Pelly's here, and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you didn't yeah. even care about you this. Get thing. away from them. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, done exactly. it, it, the, the, uh Between Nick, Ryan, and KJ, they're going to start getting more clutches at Dunai, and they're going to start becoming a possibility to be dispersed or for sale through either one of those guys. And... Right. I, I think people who I've spoken to are like, yeah, I've got to get some done eye. It's like, you don't even have any liasses. It's like, it, I, I don't know if you just want it because it's rare. And I get that because right. I want it because it's rare, because I haven't been able to get it. But uh, when does it become the status symbol? You know? Do you think it's different for guys like us that have been doing this for a long time to where I think we'd like to think it's different, but I'm pretty sure this is on the same well, level. No, what I mean is what I mean is like I mean we've we've worked with sort of the B 
beginner species, the intermediate species, and then you, you move on to something that, you know, is different. And I'm, I'm not saying that you have to be doing it for a long time in order to get, you know, whatever species, it, whether it be Dunai, Bolanai, whatever, yeah. you know, but like, I don't know. It's, it, it feels like it's, I know it sounds so hypocritical. Come on. But it, it, it just feels like that it's, 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 it's more legit, you know, does that make it's, sense? Am I saying that? It right? does. I mean, look, put it this way. You should definitely cut your teeth on a, a simpler species before jumping into these things. I mean, everybody's got the same reaction to the following. I have one Savannah monitor and then I bought a croc monitor. It's like, no, 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 no. Um, I have a corn snake and then I bought a bull and I, it's like, you don't, you need more experience. It's like it, it, it insert, animal here i had a red eared slider and i somehow got my hands on a fly river turtle it's like there's all there every single species or every single thing in herpticulture has a species that it's just kind of like a given that we you should have more experience before you jump into it yeah but it, unfortunately experience and um the means to buy expensive animals don't go hand in hand and they do hobby, not unfortunately and, and what happens what happens is on social media, you know, um, you'll post a picture of, let's say, a bull and I, and you'll get 400 likes on that picture of the bull and I. Well, somebody that's got the money but not the experience sees that and says, hey, I want that. Yeah. Because 400 people like that. And, and only awesome. 10 people yeah. like a children's python, you know? Right. So. Unfortunately, social media has many downfalls, as we all know, but that is definitely one of them as far as, yeah, and, you know, you wrestle with that as a double-edged sword. You know what? If, yeah. if the animal's in, in, in well taken care of, so what if they don't have all that experience? It's just that there's also, like, a moral obligation on some of these things, like some of these species, in my mind, to... Let's get them propagated and breeding and everything else really well in captivity before we start promoting them as, um, you know, a species that anybody with money can just go out and get and set up in their house just to look at. You know, let's get them established first before we get to that point, you know? Right, right. It'd be like having orangutans in your house just for something to look at. You know, when you're so endangered in the wild, let's, you know, if they weren't easier to breed and, or if they're not, I don't really know if they're easy to breed in captivity, but if they're not easy to breed in captivity, you know, you wouldn't want them in somebody's house just as a pet until you got that species established and able to, you know, be reproduced in captivity very easily. That's the problem. If you, if you have the money, you can get anything. So, you know, right. it, 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 it's a, it's a bull and eye. And then if you have a shit ton of money, it's a tiger or something like that. I mean, right. it, it's just kind of one of those things where um, certain species you just hope would be in the hands of people that could produce them or have a chance of producing them and then getting some more babies. The problem is, is that, like we talked about with Scott, is everybody thinks that they're the ones who are going to be the ones to breed their animals. Like, I have a pair of so-and-so, Malukans. And I'm going to get them to breed. And it's like, well, are you? And that's some people have a very hard way of saying that they're some people are very are not very good at admitting that they're not the best person to get that going. You know, if right. um, you know, the, the reason I think I can keep mucking around with white lips is because so, it's because Ryan Young exists. 
you know, he's, he's out there breeding and I'm like, okay, all right. I can keep playing around because he's producing captive born and bred clutches. But, um, I could see something if they were to turn off Indo that white lips and things, other Indonesian species like Timors and things like that are going to become very, very rare and very, very hard to come by. And I don't think everybody understands that. Right. And, and you know what, um, Scott was talking about too with Ari, like, you know, we have him as our champion out in the wild, yeah. getting us all this wild data, which is fantastic. The problem with Bo and I, it seems though, is we're getting all this wild data, but we're not getting all the captive data really shared. Cause a couple things, people are either afraid that they're going to give away some kind of a secret that they think they're getting closer to breeding them. So they don't want to share yet. Or, um, you know, they feel like maybe what they're doing is going to be frowned upon by somebody else. So they're not sharing. I mean, there's a thousand reasons why people don't share mm. their experience with Paul and I, but we're really lacking a lot of shared experience. We actually have more, almost more information about them in the wild. Thanks to Ari than we do on information of what people are doing with them in captivity. Cause people just seem so afraid to share um, what they're doing. And I posed a question in the, um, Bull and I group, I don't know, six months ago or something, I was trying to find out how many people have old animals. And I put on a chart, you know, like how many animals from one to five, how many animals five to 10, how many animals 10 to 15 and from 15 to 20. And you could clearly see that animals from one to five, there were a lot more people that had animals in that range than people that had animals over 10 years old. So these things should be living well over 10 years old, you know. So what are we doing wrong in captivity not to get that longevity was what my goal of that was. But people didn't want to share any more detail than just, like, clicking on that box, you know what I mean, where that could be very useful information for us. Like, I heard you guys talking about, you know, raising some of these species up to huge sizes and, and you know, killing them. Um, I think you guys were talking about carpet pythons. At white the time, lips. I've murdered so many white lips just by feeding them too much. But, but, so, yeah. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I I don't think there's a lot of data for bowline in captivity because people are still afraid to share anything, either, either their um, achievements or their setbacks, you know, and, and that's where we're failing these species in captivity, I think, by not sharing more and, you know, giving other people ideas for how to go to the next level with them, you know? You know, yeah. it's funny, Keith. I remember when I first joined Morelia Python Forum back in 2006, maybe, 2007, and Ari was saying the same exact thing back then. And here so we clearly are, we've expanded, yeah. Here we are 15 years later, same problem. Nobody wants to share the information. Right. It was, you know, right. back then because it wasn't really done. I mean, at least it's been done a couple times. You know now, but like back then, it was like you know it was a race. It's sort of what I see with the Helma hair scrubs. Right. It's like all of a right. sudden they become who cares, you know? Except for guys like Lawrence, who's actually working with right. them, you know, and trying to, you know, crack that crack that shell. Um, you know, I don't know. Like it just seemed like you know everybody wanted to be the person that first produced them, and now that they've been produced twice or three times. Nobody um, cares. Nobody cares. Yeah. You know, right. and it's such a shame yeah. because it's such a cool species. You know? And they'll be the Absolutely. first ones to go, dude. I mean, if they, yeah, if they turn off the spigot and it's done, 
there will be no Helma Harris. You only have three clutches of babies kicking around. I mean, that's not enough. Yeah. Have you, I mean, Keith, what is your thoughts about, have, have you, have, and I've never worked with Bow and I, so I don't really know, but like when it comes to Bow and I, like what's the thought as far as like, you know, breeding them outside of the breeding window, you know, like, uh, like the typical, uh, you know, uh, window of, for python breeding. Yeah, so I mean, for sure, I feel that even though their their rain their habitat is in general pretty stable throughout the year, and what happens except for light, you know, we Ari's done research that shows that there's you know a period of two to three months a year that gets a little bit more sunlight each day, and we've talked about that actually, you know, where being able to bask, even though the daytime temperature may remain pretty much the same throughout the year, the ability mm. to bask is really a summer, you know, period for that animal, a spring period for that animal because it's allowed, it's able to warm up and be more active for those two to three months out of the year that it's able to collect more sunshine, you know. So I forgot my train of thought on that because I'm sitting there. <laughs> I'm thinking of looking 10 at million like. different other things. Come on, no, uh, don't look at them. Yeah. <laughs> so I did house a pair together for a year for a year together, but again, I'm I'm down to working with two males and one female right now. So mm-hmm. I, I had this pair together, but they're also so I got them in 2013, these animals. So they're seven years old. They were like just turned black when I got this one parent and I have a male here from Jeff Murray on breeding loan. Um, so it's hard to tell if my animals that last year that I kept together for a year cycle were indeed old enough, if the stimulus was good or what was going on, but, you know, keeping them together for a year, I still only saw breeding the male getting active where it typically was my spring time warm-up um, for that pair. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having one pair of any animal is like standing on one leg and trying to win a race, you know, it's, it's just hard to see <laughs> enough enough um, variations between the different animals to kind of formulate a game plan, you know. Yeah. But right now I feel that I have them set up the like, you guys were also talking about changing things and keeping things consistent the same, and, you know, I, I kind of have a different view on that about, you know, if you're not being successful, you got to keep kind of tweaking here, tweaking and tweaking and tweaking. Mm-hmm. But now I finally feel that I have the setup that I'm as close to reproducing what happens in the wild. And now is the time that I'll just kind of leave them alone to get into the cycle and the groove of the thing, you know? Right. Yeah. And um, my males being able that he can access the female's cage, even though, He's behind that wood tube. I have that door that allows her sense to be even more accessible to him than if he was in a totally separate cage. So I can watch them. They're almost together even though they're separate. You know what I mean? So I can Mm -hmm. kind of watch him. And if he's going into that tube, he'll literally go into that tube and get to where her glass is. And I realize that there's, I use plexiglass as a door so I can see if he's in there and what he's doing. He'll get to that. And I realize there's light in the cage, so the light's probably attracting him. But there's no doubt in my mind that at those points when I see him at that glass, he is 
definitely trying to get into that female's cage, you know, and I'll unscrew that thing and just take it off. It takes me two seconds. He'll go in that cage and go right to that female and start courting, you know? Wow. So, you know, there's a lot of triggers there. Yeah. Um, but it still is only happening, like I say, for that one brief two-month period um, as I start conditioning him to a spring-summer cycle where he gets the males are getting very active and really interested in the female. Mm. Gotcha. But like like Dumoul's bow is, I, I know a lot of people breed them in different ways, but the only way I could breed Dumoul's bow is, I think I've told you guys this before, was to keep them together from September to March. I kept them together that whole time. If I separated them through different times, I never was successful. If I kept them together that whole time, sure enough, I would get, you know, the female, I'd pull them out then, the female would ovulate, go through her gestation, and I'd get babies in the, in the uh, fall. It was like clockwork with them. But if I didn't keep them together for that whole winter, you know, a long extended period of time, I was never successful with those animals. Wow. Then blood pythons, you put them together, right? And, and like, I'd breed them in October, get, pull them apart, but I was getting my eggs all the time in, you know, March, April, May. What was the latest you, know, you had a clutch from the bloods? October. Okay. Yeah, there you go. That one, I had one female drop in October once, which was really... You're like, what the hell? <laughs> wow, that's different. Yeah. yeah. It, That's it, either it's, really late or really early. <laughs> yeah, either you're an overachiever or you're a lazy ass. Um, but it's yeah. go ahead. It, it, it's just it, it it just goes into it is that there are multiple triggers and sometimes that one animal might not get triggered at the same time as everybody else, but something else ticks it off somewhere down the road, and it just decides. I mean, also we you know you can have sperm retention where. The male's breeding her like crazy, but she doesn't cycle with all the other females, but later on she does. And then right. eggs, you know. We yeah, think we I know. Mean, I, think, <laughs> I think with some of these animals, too, like Eric was saying about, you know, the Walmart, you know, using its head to dig out and, and all that. I think that plays in part with animals like this because, let's face it, there's been a lot of really good breeders working with Bo and I. Yeah. And we've put them through all different temperatures, all different light cycles, all different food cycles. Yeah. And the best, like, you know, every once in a while, one of these better breeders will have a uh, one clutch and then never be able to do it again or something. So, it, you know, there's probably more likely a trigger like that with, you know, the way the nest box is set up or the way... You know, some small thing like that is going on that's just not happening with all the other factors of temperature, food, and everything else happening that are just shutting them down. You know, it's probably something more along those lines than the standard. I don't know how we could all play with temperatures and food and light any more than we've already done that all of a sudden, oh, this is going to work because you have to do it for 11 days instead of 12. You know, I, Aha, I just don't see one that extra day. Thing. It's, yeah. Doesn't that annoy you when people are like, does it annoy you when people are like, hey, I just stick my bull and I in a tub in my garage and they breed like crazy every year. But, you know, I never talk about selling the babies. It's like, you're full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you're full of shit. (laughs) Do you think, um, you know, like with lions, I think it's lions. 
that you know they have a specific time frame window to breed and i think they have to like copulate like you know i don't know it's like crazy amount it's like like 90 times or something like that you know what i mean in order uh, chris, for a female to ovulate right isn't that didn't we chris let me we apologize for what he just said because it was probably <laughs> wrong so now I swear I I don't know where we apologize, Chris Salemi. He doesn't work mm-hmm. with lions. <laughs> he, work, he works with cats. <laughs> well. Anyway, it's you, you're 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 right with with. There's the sweet spot. There's the that's when they're fertile, you know, and that's when the copulation. That's that's your best time to get the animal pregnant, and you know if you miss it, you're you're boned because you have to wait for her to cycle again. But see, um, with Mo it does. That's not the problem. The problem is the ovulation, right? Right. Right, because you get, I mean, I can now safely say, you know, I can get copulation every year with no problem, aggressive males breeding the female. I I can get my females building follicles visually. I don't have an ultrasound myself, so I can't confirm what size the follicles go to or anything, but you can visibly see that they're definitely building follicles. And you get to that point, but there's some kind of a trigger from that point to ovulation that we're just not getting. And then even the guys that are getting to that point, you know, it's still rare to get a good, big, fertile clutch. I mean, I think I, I would have to say that um, Quetzal had the biggest, most, you know, fertile clutch of anybody in captivity with, uh, he had, what, 17 eggs, uh, I think it was, and one baby died in the egg, but then he had twins, so he still wound up with 17 babies. Nice. Um, I think Frederick's biggest clutch, I believe, was 13. I could be wrong. It could have been 15, but I think it was 13. And, you know, he had, a, like, one or two real good clutches, but then he's had clutches where, you know, he's got eggs but only had, you know, two or three babies out of it also. And so we're still so far away, you know. And, and, and listen, I am really good friends with Frederick. Like, you know, we'll talk about – you know, one of our family members getting sick and this and that. We're not just always talking about sick. I'm sure if there was, like, one little trigger that he knew would work, he would have told me by now, you know? Keith, so Keith, it, it, here's, here's the thing, Keith. It's like, oh, shit. Like, I, it, no, it's... I'm going to instill in you... I'm going to secrets. tell you that the one secret of Bull and Ucky... It's, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's weird, and, you know, it, it just kind of goes to show. Now, what you were talking about earlier with the animals being... Most of the animals in herpticulture or U.S. herpticulture being on the younger side, you know, I, I, if, if any of the animals I would say that would take a long time to mature, it's got to be bull and I. Like, I would peg them immediately as one of those animals that might need to be like seven or eight by the time it's time for the breed for them. Have you seen Like Tuatara, right? You think it's yeah. Tuatara always come to mind with their cooler environment and all that kind of stuff and Takes i mean i think those picture. animals have to be 20 or 30 years old before they'll be jesus you know? <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. so a long-term breeding project oh, well it's it's <laughs> it, it it makes sense to me because uh, i think any really really dark python especially that is closer to a pole or someplace colder um, it's going to take longer to mature because they're going to take longer to grow sure. and they're also the animal that if you keep them Right. Diamonds, diamonds, black face, white lips, things like that. If you keep them and feed them too much, keep them hot and feed them too much, they're going to crash. And I think that's true with all of them. So they need to be like seven or eight years old. They need to be fed properly and they need to have the dip in temp. Otherwise, they're going to stare at you and never breed. 
And I think that's something that some people don't think about because they think everything should either act like a a python or b a colubrid and that's it that's how all snakes act there's no right. in-betweens so right. and and actually you got a good point there Owen. because think about it like ari's always in search of what they're feeding on there when we were in the land of the owen pelly right. like when we looked around we saw fruit bats we saw cockatoos we saw like um, rock wallabies. We saw all these different prey items, and we're trying to the figure fossils, out what they're yeah. feeding on. They had all of that, you know. But when Ari's in the land of the bull and I, he does not see any of this stuff. He doesn't hear something scurrying off in the bush or any of that kind of stuff. So he's always wondering what they're feeding on, and we're just, you know, guessing at that. But there's, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of prey, which would lead you to believe that it takes these animals longer to grow. Mm-hmm. Plus the cooler temps and all that kind of stuff. So think about it. Maybe, maybe that is one of the biggest problems we have. Everybody's in a rush to try breeding them, so they're growing them up as fast as they can. I mean, now it seems like people are getting better, but for a long time, everybody's adult bull and I. You can look at it, and it was looked like a blood python, like yeah. you know, and how heavy it was, you know. Yeah. Right, exactly. And now, you know, you see people are, you know, sending them out and trying that, but maybe. You know, part of the problem of the whole sequence is that we are growing them up too fast, trying to get to that point so we can try breeding them and all the different ideas we got in our head. It's a good, it's a good point. I wonder if it could be I part mean, of the problem. I mean, you got to think about it. The, the, you know, we saw that Darwin in Australia, the huge Darwin. And while you guys were taking pictures, I was talking to Gavin, and I asked him what he thought that thing was eating, and he's like, possum. And I think American possum. And I'm like, no freaking way. And he goes, yeah, possum. Right. And then we saw one and when we were walking through the botanical gardens with them. They're not that far off from American possum size-wise. They're, they're still a pretty big animal. Um, right. And he's like, oh, yeah, I would eat one of those. And then it'd be good for a year, something like that. Like, so, yeah, that animal is big because it's eating large prey items, but it doesn't eat that prey item Every week it eats that one and then it might not eat again or it eats a baby one and it might not eat again for months. So, you know, that's how those animals got larger. But also, for all we know, that freaking Darwin was 13, 14 years old. Well, he also said it was possible that it might have been gravid. True. Right. And think about it. That Darwin was competing with that brown water python because look at how close they were to each other. Yeah, well, the... Brown water pythons winning, you know, that was <laughs> clearly one of them was doing better than the other. But that was the other thing is that Gavin told us in his research that, you know, he would see them eating the bats and those bats were big. I mean, yeah, yeah. I can't tell you like now that I've like, you know, uh, every day I'm looking at at least 10 pictures of wild carpet pythons and three things I notice: one, what they're feeding on. All the yeah. time, bats. All the time, fruit, fruit, flying uh, foxes, flying foxes, stuff like that. It, you know, it's like, hmm. So, just makes you think. I know carpets are pretty easy to breed, um, but you know, um, it could. You know, I think about this way. Not only, you know, when you have a species that's easy to breed, I think too often in captivity we sort of like you get slugs and you kind of brush it off to like not trying to figure out why you did. You know, like, oh, yeah, I just got a couple slugs, you know. Oh, yeah. And I'm not saying that, you know, all clutches are going to be 100%, you know, 
fertile every time, but there's got to be a reason why. Is it diet? Is it? Is there something that the prey is eating? You know, we talked about this with Halmahera scrubs. Like, they're, if they're mm. eating, I mean, most of the pictures that, that are out there, I think there's only a few, they're eating the same thing. They're eating these flying foxes, um, and they're eating these, these, and they're eating fruit. So, you know, one of the ideas that we had a long time ago was to get that uh, lorikeet powder food <laughs> the you know nectar I mean? and kind of like dip it in the dip the rat in there because maybe there's certain vitamins or something just that... shove a shove a vitamin c tablet in the and down the rat's throat and stick it in the snake yeah and i'm not saying um, you go and just like gut load your your snakes with you know <laughs> vitamins and stuff because that could probably go bad too but do it just um, do it yeah i don't no. know there's there's got to be there's got to be something to that there, I, I, there could know. be a bunch of different things i mean you know we we it's just like, you know, I think one of the main prey items of all the snakes in, in the Indo-Australia area has got to be bats just because they're everywhere. And they also come in all different shapes and sizes, which means, come on. I mean, we all saw the planet Earth where those two pythons just set up in front of the cave mouth and were just bullseyeing bats because that was easy. We saw what the Owen Pelly Python was doing in Australia. It was coming off the rocks to sit in the tree right where the gap was to ambush bats. Like, that was the purpose. So I, I think it would not be that far stretched to think that, you know, juvenile bull and I uh, would set up in a tree looking for bats. I mean. Has he found them in trees at all, um, Keith? Uh, he has. No, he has found sheds in trees, but not an actual animal. Most times it's just sheds. Um, and he, you know, we're all guessing, but Ari thinks too that that could have something to do with territoriality and mm. and setting up, you know, so other animals know where that animal is, you know, during breeding time or to keep other males out of another male's territory or anything like that. Because like I was saying, like with my animals, like definitely I... It's so weird, like you know, like when I was when I was a kid raising chickens and stuff like that. One of the things that you would do to keep the chickens, that you know, you guys know where I live. You see how my development is. I bought my parents' house, so this is the house I grew up in. And this house is I had every kind of freaking animal you could think of. <laughs> but when I was a kid, when I was a kid, um, chickens like fascinated me. I love chickens, so I had chickens. Well, one of the things you would do with chickens is you would keep them in a, your pen for like three or four weeks and feed them heavily and take care of them really well so that when you let them out to free range in your yard, they'd always stay close to your yard because you imprinted them with, you know, the land of plenty within that run that you um, kept them in before you released them into your yard. So when I set my bull and I up, yes, I had the female in the female's cage and the male in the male's cage with the access. and. Like, I left them alone for um, maybe the same amount of time, maybe four or five weeks. Then when I opened the door, it was so strange because they definitely had fidelity to their cage. Like, they, I'll never find, even when that door is open, the female very rarely wanders into the male's cage. She'll go into, you know how my setup is, so she'll go into her nest box. She'll go to her basking site. She'll go perch up in the tree. Once in a while, she'll go down the tube and she'll go into the male's cage, but she's literally in there for like five minutes and she's back in her cage where she feels comfortable. Now, even the male, when I open that, 
a lot of times he'll go in, he'll court the female breeder, but he's right back into his own cage. Like he doesn't hang out there. Like they're very, they're very oriented on their space um, when you're giving this. And that's a huge, cool observation to make on them that they're that territorial, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that, that could be part of it too. Maybe, you know, I'm thinking this is really the first year I've tried this cage. So, you know, once they get cycled into this and they feel more established in their territory and the male coming to court female into her territory on his own without me taking him out of the cage and putting him into a cage that he hasn't explored before, maybe, you know, that will all help the process, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah. Do you see in, in captivity, do you see them perch a lot or is it just every once in a while? It's really when they're exploring, like if they're hungry or if the male's looking for the female and they're really cruising around, they'll go up there and maybe hang out for, um, you know, a few minutes, maybe 20 minutes at the most, and then they're on the cruise again. They're either back into a tight, nice, you know, little hide or under the basking light during the day or something like that. But now when they were younger and I was raising these animals, they were much more boreal, obviously. They mm-hmm. they would actually coil and perch more chondro style up on um, the perches that I gave them as they were growing. Um, when they were younger, you'd find them up there, I would say, 65% of the time, actually. I would think it's probably... But yet similar. Ari's never found a little one in the wild. <laughs> right, yeah, I was going to say, maybe it's similar to what Gavin was saying with the Darwin carpets to where... Remember how he was showing us the, the, the you know, like, here's where the adults would be, but then the, the, the babies... The little ones will be here. Yeah. But that, uh, you know, like bushes they were, basically. Yeah. Right. And it was interesting, too, between the Darwin and the Owen Pelly. Um, so Darwin was really at the, the tips of the branches, right? And the smallest branches. And if you remember, it was a little windy that night and that thing was swaying like it was in a hammock, you know, literally it was like it was in a hammock swinging back and forth, not missing a beat, but it was out on those thinner branches. And at first, I don't know about you guys, but I was always looking at the stouter closer to the trunk of the tree branches for the animals you know like i was looking more in those type areas for i would never have thought that that size animal would have been on the outskirts of that tree on those thin branches i i I seem to remember it was kind of vines in that area and all too in that area that she was perched was very much like a hammock for that animal you know yeah. yeah, it was almost like it was too far out. Like it's almost like you're like, whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like don't go yeah. further. You're gonna be, uh, you know, in the street. Uh, and and think about the Owen Pelly. So the Owen Pelly, you know, is so Amazon tree boa like in its build, right? Yeah. And it stretched from that rock to that tree, and it knew where it was going. You know, it knew like it had a destination that it was going to. It wasn't really exploring. It seemed like it was going to that spot to set up to try to nail those bats that were flying around that night. And it also, you know, got on the light branches, but then went to the trunk to get to that other branch and then crawled out on that branch to set up for, for hunting, which was really cool to watch and interesting behavior, you know? God, that is I cool. St- I, I well, dude, pause. it's like I got to pause the show for a second because pausing. Take your time. I still can't believe we found an Owen Belly. No, no, stop. <laughs> and there, there it is, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, come um, on. <laughs> but this thing is, we were well, we we were looking at we were looking in the rock crevices. Like you remember, we were shining flashlights down yeah. and all this other stuff. It's like then when we saw the thing, we're like up. Like we need to start looking up. Like and, yeah. and that's just the way it is sometimes. So you know, 
seeing that animal and also seeing, you know, other things, I think definitely more and more that in herpticulture, we let the animals get too large. And when they get too large, they get lazy. They get, they do not eat or sorry, they do not breed. And they, they just, you know, they don't function, you know, I gotta it's, you, I got to tell you for like, at least for Australian stuff. Yeah. For a long time, I thought that I was breaking my snakes by doing what I was doing because it, they don't look like what you would see. see people as having a pet carpet python or even breeding carpet pythons. Um, and I kind of felt like almost like I was being um, neglectful, right? Like, yeah. It just right. it it almost it almost feels like I err on the side of like you know like maybe going too long and for a while I kind of teetered on like you know oh there's too much time between okay all right you know and I feel like I have my sweet spot and I got to tell you I'm knocking on wood but I have had no issues mm. as far as respiratory infections I've had no you know sudden deaths or anything like that you know what i'm saying like i've had all those issues before in the past and i, I just got to think that it's got to be it's kind of like people oh, sure. you know it's all I'm related sure. to diet and and exercise and yes i guess yeah. you know that's another reason why i feel like i want to move away from the racks not necessarily because the snake it's not that the snake can't survive in that, but like, are they, you know, I mean, you can go on a great diet, but if you don't exercise, you're still going to be fat. You know what dude, I mean? It, like, right. you kind of have to right. do both. Dude, I put in shelves in all my big wood cages. Just, I had spare scrap black PVC laying around when I tried that experiment and I made shelves and the olive pythons, uh, they're on top of their bins. They go in the bins and then in the morning, they're all on the shelves. And I'm like, holy shit, like they, they, they just, it's something completely was not expecting. And the shelves are small because they just kind of take up a little area above the water bowl, but the olive pythons cram themselves on top of those shelves and they just kind of hang there because when the sun rises, it comes through the window and it hits those shelves perfectly and they want to be up there. So it's something I didn't think about. And the same thing with the Timor pythons. And I'm like, well, hell, I... It's just something else and something you don't see. I, I like bins, but I'll tell you the—I'll be the first one to tell you that I probably put animals that are smaller than what everybody else puts in the bin. Like I have ones that people might throw it in uh, five quart in a fifteen, and then I have uh, ones that somebody might put in like a fifteen and a thirty-two. And vice versa. And I have animals that do great in bins, but I have other ones that do fantastic in cages. So there's multiple ways to skin the cat here, but for some harder species. Yeah, but, but, right. But think what you're missing, I guess, right. if you don't have a bigger cage and like what you're not observing. So yes. I don't know if Dennis McNamara ever told you this, but his olive python, right? He yeah. has like an upside down, let's say, killer pan for a hide in that box. And when her, his female is gravid, he will move that box away from the heat, right? The female will, during the day, he'll watch her. He'll, she'll move that box back to under his basking to get up on it to be closer to basking. Mm-hmm. She knows to move that box back. Who would ever think a snake had that ability or that, you know, right. like know-how to go about and do that? Right. And, like, in, in some of these smaller bins, you would never even see a behavior like that, you know? Yeah. I have never seen my female olive python she would not go in the bin. 
she went underneath the bin and dug it out. Like she just spun until uh-huh. the bin was sitting on the floor and right. she wanted to be underneath there. And eventually she laid and she did it inside the bin, but the bin was so far down that the hole that they would normally get into was like covered up with mulch and a bunch of other stuff like that, because she pretty much dug out the floor until the bin was sitting right on the wood. And I could feel the heat from the panel of the cage underneath coming through the floor. So, you know, I didn't know what she wanted, but I've never seen her do anything like that. It's kind of like, I'm like, you probably grab it if you're doing something funky that I've never seen you do before. So, well, the first yeah. year I bred, remember, I the, you know, I had the poplin python, the poplin yeah. carpet python, and um, I did maternal incubation, and I had overhead. Actually, at that time, I had overhead um, heat lamp, is what right. uh, what it was, and you know, I she made her a bin moving. and everything, and she kept <laughs> moving the bin away from the heat. Yeah, I was like what? And I would move it back because. I was told or I read the recipe was is that, you know what I mean? It's like, they oh, need wait, heat. No. Yeah. <laughs> they have to stay over on this side. And like, she's nope. She put it over on this side. And then I don't know. I think I was talking to Luke and it kind of dawned on me. He's like, yeah, just leave her big. Maybe that's where she wants to be. And I'm like, okay. And then she wherever she clutch. wants to put it. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's something but you don't I think never about. would have observed that. You know, yeah. the other thing, like when you're doing maternal incubation, as far as, and I've, I've said this before, but like, you know, how they regulate the humidity, how they move the, they, they kind of like, they kind of like beehive around the bottom and lift the clutch up and move yeah. it over, yeah. you know, if, 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 yeah. if, if they're trying to get away from that heat that's on the belly heat, um, you know, I've seen it to where, and Bo and I kind of do this too, don't they, where they kind of put, but this isn't on eggs, but I know like when they're ovulating or whatever, they'll put their head down in the coil and kind of like breathe into the into the coils, and I would yeah. imagine that's you know I don't know if that's humidity to cool them off or or whatever. Or maybe well, I I think I think Bull and I do it when we overcool them, and they're trying to protect the vital head at that point, and they'll put it in deep into their coils right. because they can retain heat so well. Um, but they're trying, I think, because I only really see that behavior mostly when I was bringing them down to extreme, you know, cool temps in the forties, you know, right. and you would see them start acting like that. But you know, one thing I was thinking about with the, with the Owen Pelly while we were talking too. So like, think like we did look in so many cracks and everything else. Right. And, and we provide most of our pythons with literally a plastic, you know, made upside down tub for a hide, but think about Owen Pelly. They go deep, deep, deep down into those crevices during the day to escape the heat. Yeah. And just think of how far down and how deep and how tight of a wedge that is. And like the humidity down there is probably totally different and probably where they access their water during the dry because that mountain was, you know, weeping water in different locations that we were looking at, even at the end of the dry season. I mean, we were there just as it was starting to be the rainy season, yet that mountain was still leaking water. So how deep into the mountain do these guys have to go, you know? And here we are in captivity, like we think turning a little plastic tub upside down, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, yeah, yeah. It, it, it suffices as a as a hide spot for this animal that has right. developed going deep down in these deep crevices to wedge into these little micro habitats, you know? It's just, it's like kind of laughable what we think we know, you know? 
You know, it's, uh, well, you remember, Keith, the first time I went to Australia, we went to those caves and I sent you those pictures and what, what yeah. you know, and it, you were still exposed somewhat to the outside, right? But I can tell it, it was like a 20 degree difference between outside right. and in those caves when you would walk in. Right. And right. I can't imagine, you know, it's probably much cooler because they're going down, you know, way, way down in there, you know, and it was just, it, it, it just felt so much better. <laughs> Those caves, you just, right. oh God. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You know? So, so think about, think about the Owen Pelly now that we've been there. We've seen what we've seen and a little bit that we now know about them. But if you try to think of what would be the ideal circumstances for your female to be comfortable to lay her eggs in, like we still know nothing just from, you know, everything that we were even looking at. Right. Um, and that's what hits me with Bo and I, you know what I mean? Like ours finding them on nests and able to document all of that um, information for us, which is fantastic. But what got her to that point is still what we don't know, you know? Yeah. Right. Like, you know, what made her choose that spot, that nest, or is it something that she, Ari believes that they're very um, – um, going back to that same nest and using that same nest every year just because of the hunters in that area um, seem to see, use the same nest every year for, for the, their purposes. They go back to that same nest, and it seems like the same females are in that area or were, I guess maybe another female took over that nest for whatever reasons. But what got her to that point? You know, like we only know what she's doing when she's in that nest at nesting time, but what got her to that point? Who knows, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Do you think that then maybe they come down lower off the mountain? I don't know. I'm starting to think if I wonder if the females stay up there and the males possibly go down and then travel back up during the breeding season when right. um, we get those few months of daylight. And because um, the females definitely seem, for me anyway, a little more tolerant of the cold than the males do. Mm -hmm. um, the males seem to to gravitate more to warm spots for more times a day than the female does in my, you know, experience anyway. Right. Right. So you wonder if that has something to do with possibly the males um, going down the mountains, you know, and the females are up there for whatever reason to escape maybe something that's lower in the habitat. So they go up there to have their eggs, but you know, I don't know if they're staying up there all year round because ours research is really based around nesting time because that's the easiest time for them. Uh, the local guides that he has to take him to find the animals is when they're on eggs. So that's generally when Ari goes is when they're on eggs. So, you know, we know what they're doing during that time, but it's all the rest of the time is what we just got to start figuring out, you know? Right. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, it's very, uh, right. What's your thoughts, Keith, on the, on the, you know, I think we were touched on this as like, as far as the cycle feeding, but is it a matter of, you know, do you feed before they would go into the cool down? Do you feed after they go into the cool down? Because there's two trains of thought. I mean, the one train of thought would be that you want that female to know that she can go and, you know, have enough energy and, and, and uh, you know, uh, you know, stuff that, or nutrition packed away that she can, uh, you know, produce a clutch as opposed yeah. to yeah, so the other part of it with the babies where they'll go out and they'll have abundance of food uh, to eat. 
Yeah, so like with with blood pythons and short tails, I did things so different than everybody else. Like I let them kind of fast through the summertime where a lot of people after the breeding season would be pounding their females to get weight on them, you know. Right. And, and I actually backed off in the summertime and I fed my females heavy in the winter after they were bred by the male. Um, but it, it would be, in my mind, it would be, common sense for the bull and I to do the timing of hatching babies for when there's more sunshine available to them in order to have a better um, chance at adapting to that environment. Yeah, they have a lot of instincts bred into them to know what to do, but Mother mm-hmm. Nature is going to give them the best opportunity to babies, I would think, um, to have time to acclimate to that environment. Um, so you think she would time it for what I'm calling the spring, but it's really temperature wise stays pretty much the same throughout the year. There's a little less rain and there's a little bit more sun during this time, allowing the animals to bask more. So I'm thinking the, that the, um, babies are probably timed for that time period. Um, I would also think that other animals in that area are timed for that. So that's when their babies are also being born. Um, so feeding the adults, though, still is kind of perplexing to me because, again, Ari doesn't find when he's going there a lot of prey items for those adults to be eating. Um, and they're such a lean python in the wild compared to what we have in captivity. So how many meals they're getting a year is sure, probably right. something that would be really um, interesting to find out, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um. Damn, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> Shit. You know, you know, and the other thing is, too, like when I was working with birds, especially parrots, because parrots we keep inside all the time in northern Jersey or the northeast or whatever. Everybody keeps their parrots inside, right? But I started to keep my parrots outside because, you know, you see these reports in New York City of, like, yellow nate Amazons and BB parrots and these different parrots that have escaped from owners and now they've colonized New York City. Well, what I found was if obviously if you take a bird that's been in your house and it's acclimated to your house conditions for a long amount of time, you can't go out in January and put that bird outside and expect it to survive, you know? But if I put those same birds outside now in May and gave them the, like where it's a little bit cool and then they go through the hot summer and then they start cooling down. Like a lot of these parrots, like, you know, I was raising rosellas and different cockatoos and all these different birds and outside aviaries year round at Northeast. And obviously, you know, where these birds come from doesn't have these extreme temperatures, but if you give those animals time to adapt to that environment, they will. And, you know, I'd break the hell out of them outside compared to what I was doing when I had them inside. And, you know, like, so with those baby bull and I, I think that's also why Mother Nature's probably timing that to be born right before the sunny season um, because it gives them a chance to also acclimate to those conditions when it's most favorable for them to survive, you know? Right, right. Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, that does make sense, you know. I, when, when you first started working with bloods, were they difficult to breed? Were they still? Uh, they were difficult species? to keep alive. <laughs> they were really difficult <laughs> to keep alive. You got to get they, that. They first. were seriously. They they were everybody's bane. You know, like Don Hamper. Right. Um, Don Hamper. You know, in that in that 
book has some pictures of animals on eggs, and I remember what a huge event that was when Don got eggs from a blood python. And um, I can remember, uh, you know, a, guy, a local guy here, Pete Mimicos, had gotten to grab his female, and she dropped eggs, and he got, you know, he hatched those eggs, and that was a huge event in the, in this area because he hatched those eggs. Like, like nobody was even, you know, keeping and acclimating them to captivity back then when I first started working with them. They all got respiratory infections, and, you know, they they just crashed and burned, like, so quickly in captivity. And now look at it. I mean, there's literally people that have never kept anything but a pieball ball python now getting into blood pythons and doing very well with them, you know, because they've been just almost domesticated through so many generations of captive yeah. breeding. You know, it's 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 really amazing. What was the I, I like keeping my animals on the wild side, though. You know, like I like them with that edge. I always do. You know, like yeah. like when I, I it's, for me, it's not a blood python if it's as tame as a corn snake or something. You know, yeah, like I want to have that blurry. edge. You know, yeah. 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 I just like that exciting. with the animals. You know, that's why I like all these locality carpet pythons because they're so close to. They still have that spunk. Wild. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you yeah, pick yeah up exactly. The, some carpets, and it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> okay. Just lays there, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what book these guys are reading, but you're supposed to be aggressive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know what's interesting too is just popping into my head with the birds too. I'm going back to the the pheasants that I used to work with. Uh-huh. It's weird because, like, with reptiles, right? Everybody wants like you know fifth, sixth, seventh generation captive bred animals but with with the birds you wanted as close to wild stock as you could get because they were such better breeders than than animals that were multiple you know had multiple generations in captivity the closer you could get to wild blood the better you did breeding as compared to like reptiles yeah i mean the, the fertility was so much higher on the on the um on the birds than when you got close, like the F1 animals were worth the most. If you could find F1 stock, that was like the most outrageous stuff to get. And you did so much better breeding those animals than like F5 animals. That's right. nuts. Huh. I guess they just have that, uh, you know. Birds are weird. You know, it's. Birds are weird. Birds are weird. Source with feathers, man. That's all they are. It just, you know, and we're we're sitting there walking, and Keith's like, "Look at the parrot," and I'm like, "No, it'll hurt," like because I've been bit by parrots. It is not fun. Oh no! You know, not even fun. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Freaking black cockatoos. So. so (laughs) They were amazing. They were amazing. What was the what was the what did everybody at the time with the bloods decide was the what was the trick with them like yeah is there any way well, you could you know what? that to what you're doing with Polanyi or scrubs or whatever it would be so the good thing about blood pythons was that I was able to collect fifty animals in <laughs> a short amount of time gotcha right. Only so the strong had, will survive. Right. <laughs> exactly. And you had such a you had such a base to formulate your next move on what you were gonna do, you know. So at first everybody thought you had to keep them basically in mud and you had to, you know, keep them with a, a hide box um filled to the top with mud and then a tight Tupperware that was dripping on the sides with wet because everybody thought, you know, that these animals just came from these um, you know, in their mind of this swamp, 
you know, totally steamy, you know, what you think of type thing. Right. And that's, you know, turns out to be that was so wrong from, you know, and, but every literature said that back then. So that's how you tried keeping them in, you know, and, um, we found out that they actually do better in cooler temps than we originally thought. We found out they do way better with more ventilation than we originally thought. And all that would have never happened if we didn't keep pushing the boundaries to see what they could handle versus just trying to get them to conform what we thought was the right thing to do. I guess that's maybe why I argue the point that I think it's good to keep tweaking and changing and, you know, seeing what it does to the animals, even if it sets you back a little bit, you know, you went down a negative path so you can erase that from, you know, going in the right direction. So like I say, it's, I've been working with bull and I for since 2013 now steady. Mm-hmm. And I finally now after seven years feel I have the correct setup for them to achieve what I want to achieve. Now I'm to the point where I can cycle them in. But up until this point, I never felt that they were happy and I had everything that I wanted to do, you know, taking the heat away from them quickly, I can achieve now in these cages, which is, I think is a huge thing. And I'm anxious to see, even if I don't breed them, I want to see how long they live compared to what everybody else is getting. I want these animals to be 25 years old and still having a shot at trying to breed them because realistically they, that that should be feasible for this species, you know? So I'm hoping, you know, the things I've learned along the way will, as nothing else show the longevity you can keep them at and, and still have breeding attempts and all that kind of stuff. If I can't get to that next step, at least maybe this will be, you know, a good step to show that this is a very healthy way to keep them. You know, that's a, that's a, you bring up a good point. Like I, we've mentioned before about, you know, the consistency and whatnot, but I think, you know, what we're not saying with that is sort of what you just said, um, which is a good point that you hit on. It's sort of like, I think the consistency comes into play when you sort of know what, you have a good idea of what the snake wants, you know? Like, yeah. meaning yeah. like, okay, you see it do this, you see it, you, you, you're observing it, where is it at during the day? Is it, is it trying to get away from the heat? Is it trying to get to the heat? Is it, you know, is it sitting in the water ball all the time? And, you know, all these different observations of what you can, you know, I think of Lori um, doing that with, you know, she's got um, all these things to where she's looking at, you know, bread lie and, and she's, she's trying to see like in humidity, the, the humid hide, which I never would have thought. And then it makes total sense when you think about what these animals are doing, because you think humidity with a species that lives in the desert, like why would it be wanting to get into humidity? Human. You know yeah. what I mean? Like why would that matter when it's in the desert? And it's sort of like the same thing that's with the bearded dragons that a lot of people like forget. And then once you start to think about, you know, um, I think it was Casey that said it on one show. It's like basically you find carpet pythons where there's trees. Like where there's a forest, <laughs> you're going to find carpet pythons. No matter where it is in Australia, if there's a forest, more than likely there's carpet pythons in, in there. And they're getting into those tree hollows and they're sort of, you know, they're getting in and getting that humidity, um, you know, for whatever reason, they, you know, um, I guess when you're in an environment like that, probably the humidity brings um, a certain amount of relief, you know, during the day or whatever the case would be. But, um, you know, I think that that's sort of important trying to figure out, you know, now that you feel that you have it dialed in, so to speak, to where you feel that your animals are content and, 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 you know, 
they're showing you by their their um, the behaviors that they're sort of happy and healthy. Now it's when you be consistent. You know what I mean? Right. Right. That's that's the part where experience comes into play. You know, it doesn't matter how many years you're doing it. If you're not watching your animals, you're not getting the experience you need. Let's face it. Like, you know, when you walk in your room, you just have a feeling that every all is right in the room. You know what I mean? Right. right. You do. Like, I can go in my room and there can be just one little thing off. And I walk upstairs and my mind is going and I'm, I'm restless because I know something just isn't right. But there's times you go in your room and you know everything is just right in that collection. And you walk out of your room and you just feel really good because you know everything is right. You know, this one is doing the right thing. That's doing the right. And, and that's where experience comes in. Like if, if you're just a keeper of a pet, it's different than a keeper with a passion for the animals themselves, you know, not just having it for mm-hmm. a pet, if that makes sense. Yes. But you know what I'm saying, you know, and you can feel when things are right with an animal that you're trying to figure out and crack the code. And that experience is priceless, you know, and that's like, you get so frustrated in these groups, right? When you're trying to pass some of that experience along to somebody who has the passion, but not the experience yet. So you're trying to get that insight. And either they're just unwilling to, to to listen or, you know, there's too many other keyboard warriors that really don't have the experience that start chiming <laughs> in. And they right. delude what somebody really experienced is trying to tell them. And, you know, it just uh, turns you crazy, you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's like... Uh... But that was part of the reason for this show, you know, that I, I like when you and Scott and, and Owen were talking about this show... I'm like, man, it's good to light that spark in somebody that's got the passion for mm. understanding the animals and wanting the same future that we do for obscure species or rare species or, you know, just even common species that people don't work with but are valuable in the collection because there's a, a following for them to, to work with and figure out and breed, you know, for future generations should the doors close. Right. Yeah. I mean, my ultimate, I, you know, it's, it's like trying to figure out what your path is and like follow that path and, and, and be true to that and try to stay the course and whatnot. And, you know, like for me, I'm trying to work with these Australian pythons and trying to, you know, figure them out. You know, there's so many pythons from Australia that you can work with to, that, you know, you can gain so much knowledge being able to go in the environment and see what's going on and take in that Absolutely. thing. Ultimately, hopefully one day will lead me to the Owen Pelly and be able to, you know, to me, that's my, you know, right. white whale, if you will, you know, that's my, oh, yeah. uh, you know, older and out of, you know, just wanting to, you know, keep, hopefully I make it that long that I'll be able to do that. And hopefully I make it long enough that they'll be here at some point, you know, who knows exactly. if, if they won't, I will get them and I will take care of them in your honor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I mean, we, think, think about the work Gavin is doing for future generations. I right love now. that. Just oh, think gosh. about that. Man rented you know, a helicopter it blows my mind. found them like, you know, it's yeah. It's almost I like if you it. want to work with a species like that, it's almost like you have Do to it. dedicate your your collection to that species almost. Absolutely. Yeah. And and actually I was thinking of a point to that point is you can have a multiple collection like I have you know you guys know I got a lot of different species here, right? But I really right. only concentrate on emeralds and bow and I and I having the two rooms I can kind of do that. Right. But 
just because you want to, like, bowling and I are my focus without a doubt, right? But it doesn't mean you can't keep other species and just have to have them. And if they breed, they breed. If they don't, they don't. Sure. But yeah. you definitely have to gear your room for the species that you want to work with, you know, for the next few years. Um, because other stuff you're not going to do. Like, I might not do the hog aisles because I'm concentrating so definitely on the ball and I, but it doesn't mean you can't keep them to keep them and still learn what you can learn along the way, you know? Sure. Yeah. Right. And then you accidentally run into a litter one year and you're like, ah, oh, shit. And then you have to like, you know, it, <laughs> that just happens. Like it, I get that. And I like that part. And to be honest, some of the stuff we haven't talked about is, you know, if let's say importation shuts down, there's going to be a lot more pressure and a lot more need for captive breeders to step up their game and produce because can you imagine what reptile shows are going to look like if no importation? Yeah. Absolutely. I'll finally be able to get a table back at Hamburg, but you know, it's, well, it'll be, it'll be like what we deal with Owen with Australia. I mean, yeah. Can't, I yeah. mean, stuff trickles in. Yeah. But like, really. but it doesn't come in, but can you imagine that? Turn that off. I mean, now all of a sudden it's like those four or five people that managed to get green iguana eggs or I'm sorry, Savannah monitor eggs or something like that a year. Now they're actually important because that's the only way you're going to get Savannah monitor. Like it, it becomes that, you know, it's, I kind of, I know this is probably bad to say, but I think this, oh. I think this is what Keith was alluding to with the bow and I is like, you know, I think that it's just easier to go to the wild, collect. Of course it is. Get of course a it huge is. Price tag on them, and and call it a day. Yeah. And well, the problem is, is when you start putting that big price tag on them too, though, the black market becomes even more worth right. the risk because yeah. you know now you know not only will babies be leaving the country, but older animals will be leaving the country. The animals that need to stay in the wild will be leaving the country because you've put such a high price tag on these animals that everybody wants one now. I I heard some guy, I don't know, somebody sent something around of some guy that just bought a a baby bull and I for $10,000. And I don't think they're even really like a snake guy. Like they just bought this $10,000 baby bull and I. And people start having them for a status symbol. Right. Like, you know, it's going to hurt everything right around, you know. So put if hey, you know what? If you breed the thing and you want to put a $20,000 price tag on it because they're captive bred babies and you bred them and you don't care if you sell them or not, have at it, man. Go for it. But if you're collecting animals from the wild, there's so many dangers for putting these outrageous price tags on animals that are still being collected from the wild. Um, No matter how great the story is, we all know the story if we're in this. It's not yeah. a good thing to do, man. It's just not a good thing to do. Yeah, yeah I'm going to um, rogue reptile. Uh, rough scale pythons will be thirty thousand dollars, you know, <laughs> each. I better get money to look now. at them. To look at them. Yeah. <laughs> I better get on that RRS. You, you better get on that RRS. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, even even like we've talked about this before, Owen, and I know you love rough scale pythons, but I, I do. think even they've lost their luster. Of course, I think they're because awesome. they've been, they're being produced. I think it's, they're freaking awesome too. Goddamn right, animals, you know. Good, and I yeah. definitely <laughs> like will work with them one day, but it's just a matter of it's, 
I think to the average person, though, it was like, oh, rough scale pythons. Oh, oh yeah. Gosh, you know, you dude, know? They, you saw them. I saw them at Hamburg for three grand because, you know, the people got babies from Cam and decided to sell them at, at uh, Hamburg for $3,000 each. And then the next year they were like 15 or something like that. It They've lost their luster because it's the same thing that happens with olive pythons and all those other things. There hasn't been a morph produced. So the people who really want to work with them get their pair, get their trio, get whatever, and then they don't need to buy anymore. Here we go. We have Dude, them. I, and then, I, I, you know, yeah. it, I'm telling you right now, my roughies are going to look the same as Brett's, going to look the same as Terry's, going to look the same as, like, all those other people. And there's going to be a bunch of other people because they had a couple – the bunch of people had clutches last year. And then I know of – a few people this year, so there's going to be some of the people that I don't know about who are going to get clutches. So you're going to start seeing more and more rough scale pythons, and whether or not they will drop horribly in price, I don't care. And right. you know, but I do yeah, think like, you'll, you'll luster, and then they'll have the rebound where everybody who was just kind of in them because there was some money to be had into them and didn't really care gets rid of them, or some of the people who only had them because they were kind of like a cool semi carpet semi green tree gets rid of them and then you're going to have you're going to be right at where you, where you were where you are with ring pythons where people all of a sudden they become there's less of them especially with no importation of wild animals i mean what we have in the states is what we have yeah the good yeah. thing about them though is that they are they do seem to wind up in the hands of hardcore keepers that will generally do the right thing by the animal as far as yeah. genetics and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that is a good thing that there will always be that base niche base of those animals in those people's hands for future generations to enjoy. Cause you know, the cycles always go around and come around, you know, things mm -hmm. always will come back. Of course. So it's good that, you know, the people that like them for what they are will be the ones hanging on to them Versus the people that just want the next new shiny thing, you know, yeah. and next think, pet or whatever it is. I, think I will never not have Right, yeah. because I think, I, I honestly think that we're the lucky ones. Um, I don't know how you feel about this, Keith, or maybe Owen, you came in a little, well, you were a little bit later than me, but still. I was in college. We're kind of around the same. No, I mean, like, even just from looking oh, at time it, from, just from being a kid and, yeah. you know, that kind of yeah. thing, is that our perception or of, of these animals are we've seen the world without them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So right. it's, it's kind of like the idea yeah. of like living life without the internet. We've seen the world without the internet. Right. I, I mean, me and right. Keith have, I don't know about yeah. you, Owen, but like I dial up when I was in elementary school, I think I've I'm... seen the, the world without a cell phone. I've seen all these things. So our perspective of the world is, is very different than, than, than the modern person's perspective of the world. So like, you know, the modern kid that's getting into herps, like when he goes to a reptile show, his perception of what is the, is the cool thing is like, you know, these established morphs that you see all over the place. And they're not exactly. really, they don't walk up to a table and see 10 grand on a Woma Python or 20 grand on an Angolan Python or like, Jesus. you know, these species that were like, you know, Oh my God, I can't believe that somebody has this, you know, like, how do I get it? Well, Where do I sign? I, I still look at Ross scales as, as one of the rarest pythons in the world. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like sure. to, to me, a rough scale Python 
I don't care how many people are breeding them or anything else. I still look at that, and I can remember the show. I believe Marco Shea was looking for him, and mm-hmm. it was like the, one of the rarest pythons in the world. And I, I thought that. to myself, I thought to myself, I will never see one of those in my lifetime. You know, like that thought is still in my head. So when I look at that state that looks like a brown carpet to a lot of people that don't know any better, I still see the rarest, you know, one of the rarest pythons in the world right there. Come, come over for my birth. Everybody come to Owens on his birthday and I'll stick a rough scale hatchy, hatchling in your hand. <laughs> yeah. You didn't hear me screaming I mean, just from the, just, just the threat display of that animal. I love it, but they never me, do it. Makes me want, no, I know, but just knowing that that animal has that is just yeah. wild to me, you know. Yeah. Yeah, my yeah, female. Like a frill dragon is a frill <laughs> dragon. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, car on the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's kind of like the, um, you know, what yeah. fascinates me, and we've talked about this before, but what fascinates me with rough scales more than anything was when I heard about the fact that they're basically in a arms race with the rat that they're the eating over the, the, there because the rat has adapted to actually lose its skin when it's getting attacked by the rough like scales. Yeah. Right. So like the rough chinchilla. scales develop long fish hooks. <laughs> yeah, they have nothing but fish hooks so in that mouth. So they can't get away. So oh, I mean, dear it's like, God. To me, that's yeah. fascinating. And and when, when a ruffie hits, exactly. they open up their bottom jaw so freaking wide that it, it, it's like, you know, you've seen a carpet or any other python bite and wrap, and, like, the bottom jaw is maybe a little bit distended or a little bit bigger. Rough scales, it's huge. Like, the, half the animal's head is already in its, like, throat. Like, it's... Right. I don't know. I just fed mine today, so I was checking them out, and uh, you know, see, that's all the kind of stuff we should be encouraging in in the next, you know, generation of herpers coming up. You know, to to look Read and appreciate cool those things, like yeah, to like appreciate those factors more than you know a, a purple scale on a <laughs> yeah. snake or something like. I'm not against morphs. I always sound like I always feel like, oh man, you downplay a morph and you were a big morph guy for a long time. I'm not. There's room for everybody in the hobby, but I would hate that this part of the hobby, the interesting, cool facts about different species gets lost in the hobby, you know? So I think yeah. I promote that more I come off sounding like I'm against morphs. I'm not. I, I understand all the hard work that goes into it and all that kind of stuff. But I would hate to see that part of the hobby fade away, you know? Yeah, I, I, I prefer the wild type stuff because then I don't need to think. It's like, how much do you want for the Woma Python? 300. What about that Woma Python? 300. What about that one? <laughs> Guess what? It's like, yeah, that's, that's what I, I'm lazy and that's what I want. But, you know, it's. I, I still do the genetics and the morph stuff because that's just that's just fun for me. It's cool for right. to mess around with that kind of stuff. Well, but, yeah, that's fascinating. But that's yeah. but that's 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 the niche of it. Is I, I I find myself drifting more towards having pairs or trios of just wild types, and it, and you definitely see that with the colubrid stuff that I have. You know, it's I have the the blue beauties, and that's them. I have the Krebos, and people are like you want to get into exanics. I'm like no. I don't want to like, I'd really, I'd really just, I just want to produce Kribo because I got that one clutch this year of slugs and it pissed me off so bad that I'm telling you right now, my main focus for next year, is going to be those damn Kribo. <laughs> like, I you think, know. Right. right. 
I think that if I had act, if I lived in Australia and I had access to wild type carpets, oh, I don't God. think that I would keep morphs. And I think that praying. for me, like the morph thing, kind of like um, in carpets, it kind of like it satisfies that urge that I see all these wild carpet python pictures, you know, on a daily basis. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, and I'm I'm so excited. And you guys are probably like, you know, in our chats and stuff are probably like, God damn it. Another goddamn carpet python. No, it hurts. It, it, that, see, no, I find it fascinating. To be honest. I'm a little worried. I, I get. I, I'm starting to get worried about you because I'm like, oh no, he's looking at more pictures of wild type carpets. That poor bastard is just can't get to Australia and it's killing him. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, so, yeah like, I like. I like looking at it through your guys' eyes because you're doing all the work and you explain it to me. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> so yes, I like yes. <laughs> yeah, I love looking at that stuff through your guys' eyes. I mean, I find that fascinating. Yeah, and it's like I, I just find myself that that sort of scratches that itch, if you will. You know, it's like okay, well, it's different than the normal looking coastal carpet, but it's not. You know, it's not. You know, uh, it's that's not cool. that's why I sent you that video because I figured between you guys, like you'd have a like trying to figure out if that was a locality of that carpet that in that video that I got sent you guys today that I saw um, because I like I said, I find that fascinating that you can. Yeah. Just distinguish like even locales of a, a species um, just by a certain look that you guys can see so easily that's harder for me to see, you know? Yeah, it's like there's certain things that like, uh, you know, I know we say that they're so variable and they're different from one place to another, but there are certain like little characteristics that you can pick up on and say, oh, yeah, that's from here. Or that's that's from a here. Yeah. Or, you know, this is from Tully Gorge, or this is from Brisbane, or this is from Sydney, or this is from Coffs Harbor, or wherever the case would be. Um, you see all these different ones, and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I get this, you know. Uh, you, you know what's see. really weird is when I, when I was really into bloods and short tails, and Matt can still do it today, but when I was really into that, you could pretty much look at any blood or short tail that was posted in a forum or on Facebook or anywhere, and I could tell you who bred that animal just by oh, the shit. look that animal had. Really? Oh yeah, Matt. Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Like I could pick out Matt's Borneos. I could pick out obviously Kevin Martyr's. You know, Reds. You could pick out very easily. Yeah. But yeah, without a doubt, like you know, in those days, we could pick out who was breeding those that line of animals from just by looking at it. And see, that's the problem. Is I think at one point we could do that with say like jungle carpets, but. Now we're so far, everything's just so far spread out and diversified and the only collections. Could, yeah, the only thing you would say you could nail it now would be uh, M-Pen Coastals. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, you that's see it. an M-Pen Coastal, yeah. you know that. You know it's an M-Pen Coastal, yeah. There's no And that's just the way it is. Right. You know, it. I, I think maybe if, say, Eric, you were to start maybe, if you had, like, one IJ project going on and then, like, uh somebody else had something else like i think maybe you could try to get that to that point with ijs but well um yeah. and maybe yeah. coastals too but the problem is again you know i've got brisbane's somebody else has got brisbane's and we've all we're all eventually good it's going to be hard to figure that stuff out and point that stuff out i mean like you can't you can look at my caramels and you well, know if pick you, your caramels out 
you can you, i i can't pick my own goddamn caramels out <laughs> like you know it's, as soon as i see a snake and it's a caramel i'm like oh yeah that's a no it's either yeah, owens no. yeah or it's nicks one or the other like well my like, shit came from the same place nicks did <laughs> i know but you guys bred it the same way you went in the same direction you used that yeah we your both base, did you know what i mean yeah but yeah it's fascinating <sighs> but even i i wonder keith like you know, that's funny that you say that about the, the, the short tails. It's like um, I, I see it with just the IJ guys. It's like each one of us sort of have our own sort of like you can tell by the yeah. collections that we kind of put together that we have a certain look that we're going for. You know, we mm, might have right. variety in there to spice it up. But like if you look at like if you look at, you know, uh, Jacob's stuff or you look at Billy Hunt's stuff, or you look at Steve Katz or Chris Alemi, like we all have a specific type of of look that. Mm. Is Personal for, tastes and preference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you you have the gene, but you're you're working with you know different stock to you know, right? Just present it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you all bought from, even if you all got animals from the same farm, same shipment, what you pair it with is going to be different, and then you're all going to go off on different branches, like you or you could go off on different branches, and. What I'm saying is that's what it was kind of like with jungle for a while. You had certain breeders that yeah, had a lot of tipping, hair. had a lot of banding, had a right. lot of this. And, you know, also they had the best yellow. They had the darkest blacks. And now VPI. you look yeah, at VPI, now it's a, you could tell it right away. It's a jumbled mess because now people have taken VPIs and bred them to Delia scatter shots and taken Delia scatter shots and bred them to Andrew Paris animals. And now now everybody's just got black and yellow jungles. Yeah. You know, yeah, and they, they they sort of have looked looked. I mean, you can't make anything more yellow than you know what I mean. It's like Bet me. I'm gonna make yellow it again. yellow and black, and make it the yellower yellower and the blacker blacker. You know what's it's, fun for me this breeding season is the diamond pythons, man. They're really giving me that feeling I of like love that not idea. knowing where you are, and not knowing what you're yeah. doing, and and that yeah. excitement of like, oh my god, am I gonna get the clutch? Oh my god, Actually, is this is, I mean, is this it? You know, dude, hatching diamonds would be crazy because yeah. I mean, that was for me, that's a species that it's a Cadillac species. It's a it's a species that, you know, I tried and failed with uh, twice. And it's also a species that, you know, I was told from a reptiles magazine that you have to do insane amount of things to get breeding and, I, and stuff I wasn't comfortable with. And now you're going to produce it in your office, potentially. I gotta like, be honest. I'm, I'm curious. Shit, I'm curious to what you guys think. Like, I th I'm thinking of moving away from radiant heat panels, especially with the diamonds, and moving towards like those uh, ceramic. Um, no, like the UVB heat. It, uh, uh, what is what is it? It starts with an R. I can't think of. Uh, I know they used it with Bowl and I for a while. R used them too. Oh, shit. What is it? It's like a souped up. Bowl, but it's got UVB oh. and UV. And um, what the hell is it called? I, I say Raptor, but it's not Raptor. I like my radiant heat panels, but I will I will tell you that I've been experimenting with other heat sources, and I've not been upset with any of the ones that I've tried. Like, dude, I got heat tape, I got panels, I got ceramic heaters, like I. There's so many different ways to skin the cat. Um, if I were to do something like diamonds again, I would do them like you do them um, with them set up with a, with a lamp. And then when I would set up the cages, I would probably set them up like 
I know somebody who ha- I forget his name, but he's got light fixtures that almost look like they're um, triangles that fit up in the corner um, of like a PVC cage. I would do those on right. on timers. I, um, I I look at radiant heat panels as as a ambient warming of a cage, and I look at lamps bulbs as a true basking site. Now, yeah, um, I haven't used both with the bow and I. You can create a warm environment for an ambient temperature in the cage with radiant heat panels very well, I think, if you want. But if you want to provide an animal that's husbandry and ecology is based around the ability to bask, I think a bulb is the only way to go. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's the way I'm going to go. Um, to be honest with the ceramic heaters, um, like I went downstairs – at lunch because I was going to thaw out a bunch of rodents and feed after work. So I went downstairs and I caught both Kribo and the Vietnamese Blue Beauties out. And they were all sitting on top of their bins because that's when the ceramic heaters kind of hit their, their peak. So they were out enjoying that stuff. And then when I came down later, they were all inside their bins. Like that's just the way it is with them. So it's almost like they kind of have a basking spot, but there's no lights. Um, cause I also didn't want to get them super hot. I would imagine a basking site for something like a Python, you'd have to go bulb wise just because they would ne- kind of need it a little bit more intense. Like I don't want them to get above 80 degrees in like the Kribos and stuff like that. Well, the cool 80, 82. You probably, yeah, you don't want to, but, uh, no, I, not for them. I don't, you know, 80, 82 for them is fine. And I mean, you know, they got big enough cages that they kind of warm up and then they just kind of chill. Uh, same thing's going to end up happening with my, uh, the Chinese king rats who I have to move into bigger cages because I finally dug them out of their hidey holes and I'm like, Oh dear God. So yep. Keith, did you ever work well, with think of that? Yeah, I did. Um, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't successful breeding them, but I had them back in the time when, you know, he, even the barkers and everything were putting like 30 animals in a cage thinking, you know, maybe the, all the male combat and everything else would oh, God. spur on fertility and all that kind of stuff. And back then, a lot of people, you know, were giving up trying to breed diamonds and, you know, they had the neurological problems. And also that's when they start crossing them into the yeah. jungles and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, I kept them, and I kept them alive for a while, and then I wound up trading them off. I don't even remember for what. It might have been for the croc monitors I got back then. I don't you remember, psycho. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I liked them. I enjoyed them and everything else, but I didn't feel that I was going to go anywhere with them. And, you know, at that time, my interests were just so all over the place. I just moved on from them very quickly. But I'll have again one day, especially when Erickson was breeding. Yeah, just go to Erickson pick out some diamonds, yeah. Yep. Yeah. But, but with the light sure. bulbs, I was thinking, yeah. with the light bulbs, I was thinking while you guys were talking is like, so that's why I feel so comfortable with that cage I have now. Cause you figure the bullenized environment is always cool. Mm-hmm. Right. And the sun is the main factor for them, giving them heat and whatnot. So the bulb in that cage allows me to like come on and off, but being on the floor of the basement, which is always like 62 to 65 degrees, once that basking light goes off, that overwhelming force of my concrete floors is sucking that heat out of that cage mm-hmm. very quickly uh-huh. for the ball and ice. So I think that's very important to 
like with a radiant heat panel, it just like to generate enough heat for, I have to leave it on for so much longer where I can give them a shot of heat, turn it off and then start sucking the heat out of them, which I think is really important with the bowl and yeah. versus the radiant heat panels that we're going to be um, on for a longer duration and warming, you know, more things in the cage and that spotlight does in a very pinpoint area. So I think for certain species, without a doubt, the bulb is a better way to go. And diamonds sound like they were great in that same time. Of, I, I would, know, I would take diamonds like that. Yeah. Everything they, I'm looking at, you know, with the bulbs just seems to point towards that's sort of what, and I guess it makes sense. I mean, there, there are species that has evolved to use the sun. They're dark, they're black, very similar to the ball. And right. I mean, they come from an environment. Right. They're the most Southern ranging Python in the world. So, I mean, right. you know, they're probably, you know, maybe not, the same altitude and stuff like that. But, you know, obviously, they're not, but I would imagine that they're experiencing the same temperatures. Um, Something like right, that, yeah. You know, as as Bull and I. Absolutely. So with the Absolutely. with the lights, Keith, that you have on, do you, you you turn them like you put them on for a certain amount of time, then they turn off, then they turn on? Is that? Yeah, I won't. I won't give them more. I won't give them more than an hour's worth of basking at a shot. Uh-huh. And I have the timer set up to just do that at different periods throughout the day. Okay. Um, I do increase it. See, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of that has to do when you guys were talking about um, slugs and what causes the problem with slugs for that specific animal and everything. And I think fertility with bull and I, like for when Frederick's doing really good with it, I, I think a lot of that could be heat-related, um, timing of giving them heat and for how much time could reduce the viability that the female has sperm inside of her, you know, mm-hmm. before ovulation. And I think that can hurt the heat, you know, giving it too quick or too long or too much or too hot um, is probably one of the factors uh, for doing that. Um, so, yeah, I'm playing around with that still a little bit as far as in the winter, I'll give them like one shot a day and the cage will be 65 and they're or 62 to 65 and they're uh, heated heights are going to be about 75 to 78. So they'll have access to that temperature. Right. Um, but I'm only going to give them one shot of the basking during the day for probably two hours and then that's it. But right now they get um, an hour to an hour and a half, uh, four different times during the day right now. Okay. okay. Gotcha. Now, do you notice... Um... Do you notice that, you know, like, as far as, um, are they, well, I guess, have you temp gunned them, like a surface temp, like after the heat is off and whatnot, and where they're at? Yeah, they, they generally are 10 degrees warmer than the ambient of the cage in general, okay. um, if providing them that basking. Um they, I don't let them get above 87. I try to time things so that they don't have time to, to get above surface temperature of 87 of their uh, body. When I temp gun them, I try to keep them under that. Um, I would never want them to get up into the 90s. Some people leave the basking on all day, and I'm sure those Jesus. animals are in the 90s to 95, you know? Right. I don't think um, I don't think they would sit there like in the wild. I don't think they would sit out there till they got ninety degrees. I think they'd sit out no, there. I don't think they have the ability yeah. to because, like Ari says, you know, if you're lucky if you get 
two straight hours of sunlight during the day, during the sunny time, you know, and then yeah. the mist clouds roll in and then they'll break off and you'll get another half an hour of sun, you know, so trying to recreate that and that environment has got to be what's going to suck the heat out of them. That's why I finally, like I say, I'm happy with the cages because my cages now do that. Once those lights go off, that cage is immediately starting to suck the heat out of them versus a more closed cage system where, you know, that heat would just be retained until the next basking cycle pretty much, you know. I find that uh, the one thing that the one observation that you made, I guess it was a couple years ago, I think that you said this is that, um, you know, Bowl and I have evolved to bask in the sun and try to take advantage of, you know, like not knowing if it's going to be there again. So they're going to try to soak up as much sun as they can and they're not going to turn off from that basking because they don't know when it's going to come again. You know, and that just right. highlights the difference between captivity and the wild. Like I know a lot of times like people try to like have this perfect recreation of the wild. And I think that sometimes <laughs> you have to really think about it to be harsh. <laughs> and it's kind of like you think about think about carpet pythons just in general. And I think Bo and I are probably the same. Think about uh, Scott talking about his Malukans and the feed response that they have. You know, you look yeah. at Morelia in general and like. You know, they're just trying to take advantage. Like they don't know when the next meal. Is they will always out. eat, right? You because know? they don't know. Yeah. Correct. Right. So, I think you that, have to limit it. And we have this crazy, you know, I think it's starting to shift now. But like the idea that you're just overfeeding these animals to death because yeah. they they don't know when they're not. You know what I mean? So like they're just programmed to be like, oh, food, okay, and eh, you know, oh, food, okay, and eh, you know. And it's kind of similar with their other, uh, you know, uh, requirements to keep them alive, you know, heat, light, all those kind of things. Um, yeah, well, we, we tend to try to pr- provide perfect conditions for our animals 24-7, right? Right. So you're giving them to ability, the ability to actually process more food than they were designed to do by providing these perfect conditions for them and pretty much making them willing to eat you know, any time of the day, any day of the year. So, you know, you're definitely creating a very unnatural thing by trying to only recreate their most perfect scenario in the wild all the time, which most keepers do, you know. They try to give them the best, killing them with kindness, we always say, right? Right. They try to give them the best... um, the best of their world at all times and and that just gives them the ability to do unnatural things for sure right. as far as eating and all that yeah fascinating stuff man <laughs> it's it's just oh man i just geek out on this stuff so much so <laughs> i could talk about it for days you know i know you guys could too but <laughs> it's like oh man oh yeah you know wow absolutely yeah, I'm, uh, you know, and, and like, I, I think, I, I think I said it before, but it's just like trying to figure out like what makes the car run as opposed to the paint job is, is like, to me, kind of where my head is at, you know, trying to, you know, really figure out like, what is, is the, is the best way to keep the animal in captivity uh, for longevity, um, you know, uh, and overall health of the animal and, and 
establishing the animals so that people have them for the future, you know? So. Right. Absolutely. I mean, even to that end, like you can even see if you've followed or known of Tom Crutchfield through his whole, um, you know, from when he, he ran Crutchfields and all those different things, how his, his keeping has evolved to, you know, these big outdoor enclosures now versus when he had the the shop and all the animals were more in, you know, traditional cages and, you know, he has evolved as a keeper too to the more natural and giving them these bigger enclosures and more natural and planted and, you know, pools and all that kind of stuff. I think we all go through that as a hobby, but it seems like as we get older, you kind of, you know, look at that aspect of keeping again and, you know, less is more where as far as numbers of the animals you keep aren't as important as how you're keeping the animals, you know? Yeah. 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 I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> like it's, uh, it's well, right. I might have to cut some of this back in order to, uh, you know. Eric's like, outside with measuring tape, wondering where he's going to put the building. So, you know, dude, I'm thinking about, you know, I was thinking the other day, do it. About <laughs> yeah, I would love to do that out back eventually. But like, I'm thinking of like an enclosure for my olive pythons, like when they get to size, because that's another species that I'm like, you know, geeked out about, like, it's been a long time since I would go into my snake room and like, you know, pull out a snake and just kind of like be fascinated that it's in my hands. You know, I, I didn't think I was going to be as excited as I am for the olive python eggs, but I really am like, I don't know why it's, (laughs) I, well, I mean, I just figured it'd be like, eh, whatever. It's just a new species, but now I'm like, Oh my God. What are the like? What is this gonna be like? Dude, Never done this before. Come out of the egg and they got. Dude, the, it's like I don't have like first, cobra. First off, like cobra first off, the problem is first off the problem is is that I am grossly unprepared for oh, baby olive pythons because all my baby bins are five quarts and I'm like, nope, nope, this is not gonna go well. No. So I'm like, shit, I have to sell some stuff so I can go buy fifteen quart bins. Uh, racks so that I have enough rack space for baby olives when they hatch. Maybe V18s. So, Maybe V18s what? is what you need. Maybe no. a longer one, you know? No. I just I just wanted to get the 15s. I just want to get the 15s. Okay. All right. Because then if they if they grow out of the 15s, they got enough 32s. To oh, you're choke. keeping them for a long time. Is that what you're saying? No, I don't want to keep them for a long time. I want them the hell out. But I know that people all of a sudden go, man, I'm really interested in so-and-so clutch. And then when the baby's finally ready, they're gone. So right. I, I'm not an idiot. Dude, another, so. one, another one is water pythons. I mean, you know, like. I got to get mine bigger. I think my male's not big enough to deal with my female. But I was one day, man. I the other day, and I'm like, look at the belly. Yeah. The belly's like bright yeah. orange, yellow, and like, you know, it's the yeah. essence. But nobody gives a shit. It, it, no one gives a damn. No one gives a damn. It, it's different when you're there in their habitat, though. Like, you know, I, I, Gary gave me his little children I feed now. And just looking at that, that animal, it just brings me back to what we did in Australia, you know. So definitely, like, you know, if I could visit all these different areas, I'd be in real trouble. <laughs> I don't want to collect all those species, too, you know. Yeah, but found out definitely, like, holding off. <laughs> Yeah, Keith, Keith's like, I can't. I can't like, do I it. I got no more room. Please stop. Yeah. Like, yeah. like I, I look at my blackheads in a totally different way. Just I, I, Every time I look at them, seriously, we're, we're on that road again, finding that one in a while, just in awe. That was you know, we're all like night. talk about geeking out. We all geek out that night. That was a yeah. good night. I mean, that was Let a me, fun night. 
Let me ask you guys, like, do you feel a little bit bad for the blackhead that had to follow the Owen Pelly? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you feel like the no, blackhead right. got no, a little robbed. He got no, a little bit robbed, you know? No, no, no. No, we were we were just as not as excited. Well, maybe we didn't spend eight hours staring at it taking pictures, but you know, it was still one of those things where I remember Keith stopping the car and Rob and I tearing down the road as fast as we could. Like the intensity didn't stop. It wasn't like it wasn't like we were on our way back and I guess we'll stop for this one. Then I'll like uh, Keith comes to a screeching halt, taking the car off the road. Eric favorite, and I, Rob and I are bailing out before the cars even stopped. Like, yeah, it was, it was favorite, still on. My favorite part of that story is Keith is sitting in the car and it's, and we're all dark, jumping up and, and he down. just sees flashlights just <laughs> flying around. And either, like, oh, I guess they found something. Either, either something's <laughs> killing them or they found something. <laughs> I'm like, all right, this definitely is not another night tiger. By then we found like, a hundred of them, you know. Yeah. So I'm like, they would not be that excited for the night tiger. I better go check it out and see what they they'd found. All, they'd all be looking down and walking back dejected. You're like, you know, yeah, yeah. That was cool to find uh, the blackhead, man. It really was, you know. Yeah, no. I mean, so I don't feel, I don't feel bad for the blackhead. I just head. feel that it was a little bit bad for the I feel bad for the gigantic water python because everybody was like, oh, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> That's like, true too because we thought it was an olive. We're like, exactly. No We're like, oh we got all five. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a freakishly large water python. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, if other. Even for how hard it is to get to Australia and for all the planning that you and Rob and everything, I think me and Owen will agree that we went along for the ride with all yeah, the planning we you guys did. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, for all of that, it's still a more accessible place for most of us to go to and be able to do what we did versus trying to go where Ari's going to see yeah. what's there, or, you know, oh, going even to see, you know, Northern uh, Emerald Tree Bow is in the wild and all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. And and we did it on our own without guides, you know, which is, yeah. you know, you go to these other parts of the world, you got to hire people. And like you guys, like rock. Scott was Ari talking about, rock. you know, they kind of pretty much have a snake planned in the tree for you to see because you're paying them to guide you to these spots. But, you know, Australia is just amazing for all those factors to be able to go there and see it. I guarantee you, anybody that goes there that is a keeper will be keeping all the species that they find oh. once they're over there because it, it just does something to you. you know? it changes, yeah. yeah, it changes if, your whole... If I had the money and the space to, like, dedicate a room to Merton's monitors, those... Ba- <laughs> oh, God. Uh, oh, God, those babies that I sent you a link for. I'm like, Keith, buy these so I don't have to. And you're like, do it. Yeah. I'm like, no, that's not the right answer, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> no, Keith. Like, it's, yeah, I, it's. Did they God. say how many were available? I mean, they had, they had quite a few, like, right? You know, two, he's had a, it, the pictures were a few, and it's like two something. And I'm like, oh. 2,500, yeah. Oh, God. And I liked Mertens before we went over to go see them. Because Andrew had uh, some Mertens, and now I'm just like, God, that would be awesome. So watching no. all those animals come up out of that swamp after God. all I can guess is that they were out there hunting and coming back from foraging. Um, that exactly. was just amazing to me to watch them come up out of that swamp. Can you imagine though, to do a Mertens justice, how big that enclosure would have to be? You have to have a water yeah. fixture, you have to have a land fixture, you have to have all this other stuff. I mean, it's a room. It's a room. Right, right. 
you have a, a shallow section and a deep section of the pond, yeah. you know, yeah. you really want to observe all their different behaviors because they looked to me that they clearly were coming up to the deep water for sanctuary. Should anything threaten them, they could dive into that deep water to elude a predator. But they were going down to those shallows with the swamp and the, you know, vines and everything else to do their actual hunting because prey, I would think, would be a lot easier for them to catch down there yeah. and find. So it was just cool to see that whole cycle going on there to recreate that in a, in a captive environment would be awesome to watch, you know. And to be honest, a lot of the monitors that I've seen in captivity, like the Mertens monitors that I saw in captivity, were massive compared to those Mertens monitors right. that we saw. So that's another animal right. that it's like it. They don't need to be huge. Like it, it's right. a it's a thin body, quick monitor. Like that's the whole point is that it can bail out fast. So right, yeah. Or big, uh, what do you call it? Frilled dragon, big. Mm, a big frilly, yeah. Come on, you can't get more iconic than that. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I just get a whole, I get a whole field of kangaroo, call it a day. Yeah. I see you getting that one day. Man, one day. Well, you like that farm we stayed at, you know? I gotta convince, I gotta convince her that you know I can get something bigger than wallabies. So I'm working on it. Yeah. So. I'm even wanting to keep like one of the, you know, that gecko we found when I was looking at the blackheads. Dude, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You want to get a blackhead stick gecko? Everyone does. <laughs> we have to get that guy to, to carve you one of those uh, walking sticks. Walking sticks with a blackhead? Black yeah. yeah. Oh, if if we had made him bring blackhead stick back to the United States, I was going to do that. Like, I'll have it carved for you. Uh, yeah. That was, uh, that was definitely an Eric moment for sure. Look, a blackhead. You, you went. You Idiot. went from. You went from so. You went from so low to you managed to save yourself because you found a gecko. Rob like, sort of oh. tilting his head, looking at <laughs> me like, the really, man. Really? Conversation <laughs> that Rob and I were having on our way back to you before right. you found the gecko. It was going to be the rest of the day. Right. So, yeah. Owen's like, finally, well, I, think, I get uh, the Justin... on him. <laughs> yep. What were you going to say? <laughs> Justin keeps those geckos, doesn't he? I think so. Um, uh, they, what are they? I think spiny? Justin works with the. Um, he works with a lot of the. Um, uh, shit, I'm drawing a total blank. Like the knobbies. Yeah. I love knobbies. Okay. Yeah. They're like little frog okay. geckos, and they bark at you. They're hilarious. I just, I don't feel like dealing with it. It's like yeah, it's the bugs that take. But I got yeah, you, man. Having like it. a nice naturalistic setup, like in my living room instead of a fish tank or something, with a cool gecko yeah. like that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Working on the just, one for the rhinos, I'd and be it's able to just, just look really like cool. oh, Australia. How I yeah. miss you, <laughs> you know. So, Eric, you were actually talking before, and you just kind of made me think about what we have available to us these days compared to when you know, especially when I was a kid. Right. Think about if the doors had closed back then when I was a kid, all the stuff that all of us right now would not be working with if oh. it had closed back then. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, yeah. At least now we do have a lot of stuff in captivity in a lot of very experienced keepers' hands in the United States. That should the doors close, we have a shot at keeping at least what we have for future generations to see, you know? Yeah. But if that had happened many years earlier, none of us would have 
I, I don't even know what I would have at this point. I'd probably still be working with water snakes on water snakes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'd be working with, uh, you know, maybe uh, uh, indigos and rattlers and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, Colombian, Colombian, uh, oh, constructors, and that's about it. Just yeah. breed all the various types of black rat snake, and then I'm good. So, yeah, yeah, it's, I, I you know, and, and I worry about like, uh, I know it's, 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 it's not really, well, it kind of is in the same vein, but like, you know, um, just. I just think of the difference between Australia 20 years ago as opposed to now with the cane toads and, you know, environment being cut down. And, you know, I think of Matt with Borneo, right? You know, mm -hmm. I know we kind of tell him like, you know, sometimes like, dude, that's a little nerve wracking if you're going by yourself to go to yeah, Borneo. But, you know, <laughs> right. I also think about like if he doesn't take the shot soon, like, is there going to be anything left? You know what I mean? Like, you know, right. you have to yeah. Wonder yep. if, if these species are going to disappear from from the wild and the only outlet we will have will be captivity and i know you know i think of the barker's book the invisible ark which you know i mean right. that's that's just a, a great book but um yeah i don't know and we're so focused on the morphs and stuff that you know we we lose sight of that that the, i don't know there's i i guess it's when you get older man i, I don't know it's like you just kind of change like you just your mindset changes that there's the natural Absolutely. beauty of the wild is just you don't need anything else you know i can totally appreciate a wild snake when i first got involved in uh carpets or in herpticulture in college yeah. i would actually prefer the morph but now i can i can tell you that i would prefer the wild type over a morph well, and if i could so many I would go back and rebuild my projects. Right. Yeah. So so many people put, you know, how much work it took to get yeah. to a morph animal, but they don't take into consideration how much work went into creating that natural snake to live in a hostile environment. You know what I mean? <laughs> For it to be worked. And I think that's, yeah. you know, that's what I look at now. Like the own Pelly is classic for, what it does in a survival and how it's built so unlike any other python in my book there's not another python that even comes close to the design of that animal no. um for what it does you know i appreciate that beauty and those you know eons of time to evolve to that point more than mm -hmm. than the morph at the moment you know yeah, I know yeah. we were talking about the fact that it changed colors and stuff like that, but I think that's like something that like I think your average person doesn't even know that that's even a fact about that them. happens. Like they yeah. actually change color, like not like fire up. They like change color. You know, <laughs> they look like right. a different snake and, from day to night. And even if they even if they do know that, they just say, "Huh, oh, it changes color," you but they don't break it down and start thinking <laughs> why and how and how right. does a scale change color? You know, it's right. just it's wild. Yeah. I just I was I was going through my pictures and I sent you guys this picture, but the moment we were we were able to I don't know who took the picture I don't know if it was on my phone or if it was Rob took it or I took it or whatever it was, but it's that moment when that snake is coming across that out of that rock and climbing to that tree, like that moment was captured in that one shot and you can see it like and like just yeah. by accident I was going through my pictures from Australia is like finally going through them again and like really trying to figure out what's what and all that. And 
I found all these crazy videos, like, you know, the one Keith with you and holding the, the water python, which I guess was your first wild python, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, like, just the look on your face, you're like, you know, you're like a kid in the candy store. Like, you oh, almost have, like you're, like, nervous about it at the same time, like, super excited. And I'm I, like, I was, wow. I was looking feel at it. The feeling. You know? I was looking at a tree yeah. in a fever haze, like dying just <laughs> off camera. Yeah. I actually, I don't. Well, Eric, I think. Yeah. I think you were behind me when we were walking where we found the old Pelly. Yes. I think right, and we look up, and you knew what it was right away just by that iconic shape. Yeah. But yeah. you couldn't positively identify like those moments. My my heart was pounding out of my chest. I know, right? Because right, I remember because like, I it's like. I know what video. What we say, no, it is. You know, yeah. is it? Is it? Well, it's it? funny. Is I pulled up the video and I didn't realize is that I, I like I turned it all the way up. There's there's audio of us talking and this thing's coming <laughs> off the rock and it's like and Keith's like that's got to be it and, and it yes. yeah no it can't be anything else has to be it and I, know, I, and I think like I think one of the I think no, one of the man. last things I think one of the last things I say on camera is like if that's a Darwin carpet I'm gonna be so pissed like it's. <laughs> I With never my listened. voice like a twelve-year-old schoolgirl. I just it's so high pitched. It's just like it. It's just, I never listened to the audio part of the video before because I never turned on my. I usually keep my phone on silent. So we were kind of shooting pictures back and forth like a week or so ago, and I found the video and I pulled it up and I, I the first time I actually listened to the audio aspect of it and I was cracking up because like we're like has to be right yeah. Right? Yeah. Like we're convincing each other that that's what we're looking at. So I'll have to right. uh, share the video too. I have it when you guys actually. I, I guess it was Rob that was pulling it out. Was it you? I can't remember if it was you, Owen, or Rob that was pulling the water python out of the log. Uh, that was, was uh, Rob. I I saw it. Yeah. I yelled, and because it was me and Rob up front. Right. Because uh, we're all on like you know because uh, we're all on different sides of the path. Right. So me and Rob up front, and then you and Keith in back. And um, I remember thinking the, like, I may die here. And that's when I looked over and saw, and I said, snake. And then Rob jumped on it before I did. So, so it was Rob. Um, so that was video. actually after, like, flying 25 hours. Too, yeah. And then like the just, funny thing is, yeah. is that yeah. we did that. And then we kind of, like, it, it kind of rejuvenated me. And we're like, oh, let's yeah. keep going. And then we walk. And then Rob nearly steps on the slaty gray. And it was like, right. oh, shit. And it was like snake again so yeah didn't didn't he pick that up and he was like wow this is pretty chill like, he picked it up and then it started he, the shit out of he, he picked it up and then he's like he goes where and then he puts it back down and he goes that may be venomous it's like oh and that's when he put it underneath his hat and it's like biting this shit out of the hat he goes hmm it's like okay you could actually you could actually hear its teeth grinding on his camera lens when it, yeah, camera. it was not happy with us so uh and that was after yeah, like, and that was after idea. Keith nearly got. No, it was a Rob, but it was uh, the Buffalo. Was were you out of the car? Yeah, for that, I saw Keith? the Buffalo, and Rob was jumping out. I'm like, no, get back what in the car. Are you gonna do jump on it? Like, yeah, it's. Yeah. Oh my god! God, what a good time! Wow, you so forget many, all like, the. the you forget all the right? parts. Yeah. So yeah, the little bit. Like you think about the highlights, like the water python, but then you forget that like Rob was nearly murdered by a buffalo. <laughs> like it was. <laughs> And we were eye shining off Fog Dam, and there were tons of shit, like little lizards and stuff. And then you could see the the eye shine of the crocs way off in the distance and stuff like that. But it was, 
Um, then we went to that beach where you could see the slide and stuff like that of it. It yeah. Oh yeah, the the beach with all yeah. the mud and shit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 wild that you are feet from an animal that can take you out in a heartbeat of you know what I mean? Like oh, a, yeah. a, something yeah, that imagine. you admire. <laughs> that this looks at you as food, yeah. you know, and you're standing there literally just trying to say, am I out of range? In an acrylic tube with one of those things. It's like, you <laughs> yeah. get in there and you're like, this may have been a mistake. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, I think though, the one thing that I would say um, for years talking to Nick and Justin and Scott and all these people that, you know, have either, they either live in Australia or been to Australia um, you know, my idea in my mind of what Fog Dam looked like, as opposed to what it really was, is completely yeah, different. Completely like, different. You know, yeah. I just had this idea that it's like this big river, um, you know, and I'm thinking of like, you know, uh, you know, like the Schuylkill or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like how big that is. And I'm thinking, oh, this must be what it's like. And, you know, you run down to the edge and it's kind of like the beach and, you know, it's like this long beach and i'm like oh man this is not like what i thought it's all. not it at all yeah <laughs> you add a little water to this uh mix and we could be in trouble <laughs> like, yeah like you're we literally could, we, the, like, right, right there's the water's edge salt salties you know like yeah shit yeah Ugh. good stuff absolutely good good stuff uh, i don't know did we do it gentlemen I think we did a show. <laughs> I think yeah, I think we're good at this point. So, yeah, yeah. My my mind right now is just trying to think of how to get Owen Pelly into the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, like, <laughs> we need to start a small zoo, and Eric needs to hire us all as keepers, and then we can import the Owen Pellys legally, and then we'll all be good. Dude, as crazy as that uh, sounds, I tell you what, yeah. you know, like I know breeding and doing this as a living is like, you know, a lot of people's like, you know, dreams, dreams. like that. But really, yeah. at the end of the day, you know, my real dream of working with reptiles would be having like a serpentarium, you know, yeah. like having like naturalistic setups, like huge Dude. enclosures of, you know, what bar I mean? like, checks, bar checks thing is like, you know, that's gorgeous. The stuff he the, the new enclosures he put in in his thing, uh, like his anaconda enclosure and stuff like that. Yeah, I think of, um, you know, this is the first place where I really saw an adult olive python was at the mm. Baltimore Aquarium. They had an exhibit for mm -hmm. they still have it if they got rid of it. But for a long time, they had an exhibit called Australia. And when you would go in there. They pretty much had a good representation of a lot of like you know Australian reptiles and blackheads and you know nice. and uh, water pythons and whatnot. But they had this display of this. Everything was like you know made out of like it looked like the rocks. Like it looked like what we saw in Australia as far as like the where right. we found yeah. the pellies and it had that look and it was majestic and waterfalls and all this stuff. And we were coming back from Carpet Fest. When it was at Howard's, and it was me, I think you were there, Owen, right? Weren't you there? Uh, I was not, not there. I, you weren't there. Okay. So I did not. Me, I did, I I did not go. There. Okay. So You we guys went down it. the day before, right? Well, on our way back up, we stopped and saw yeah. that because it was it was on the way home. And, and right. we just going through there, and um, I remember seeing that olive python just sitting on the rock, and there's, like, yeah. this, this big pool of water, like, uh, you know, and it had, like, uh, um 
fish from Australia that were swimming in the, in the bottom part, and it was like you know, fruit nuts. bats were up in the top, and it just it was just impressive, like in crazy enclosure. Right. And like I could have sat there all day and watched mm. that snake just sit on the rock, you know, like waiting for it to move yep. or something like that. Yep. To me, that would be like my, even if it was just for me, like if I had a lot of land and a lot of money, that's what I would be doing. Not necessarily, I would be breeding still, but like my focus would be more on that. So that after some, uh, some of Thai parks, uh, exhibits say zooming in as a guano land are really coming out amazing. Yeah. Now. Starting to finish some of those up. Yeah. Yeah, he, like uh, he posted a picture today of that Jamaica boa that Tom Crutchfield gave him for display right. in such a cool setup, and it's all coiled up in those branches. I mean, oh, that, wow. tell me, you walk out in your backyard and you see that stuff, how amazing would that be? Oh, my yeah. God. Man, rough scales and, like, you know, rock crevice thing. You know oh, what I mean? Like, God, yes. Like a rock wall with, like, the rough scales. Just like, and just you know, sticking it out. That, that like was a nice group of them, like, you know. That like, was the major disappointment with Crocosaurus Cope is I'm like, you know, you didn't go – you didn't go all out. Like you didn't make like the rough scales were on oh, yeah, branches and stuff of that. I'm like, the hell is this? It's like, it's just... They got no love, then, man. Then the albino blue tongue in there. And I'm like, the hell morph. Like, yeah. It... Yeah. It's weird. Like we walked through there. We didn't even get like, what is this? Get it out of here. Albino. Yeah. It... <laughs> well, like they, they had an albino Darwin in there. We're like, what? Like it, God, they didn't even do the perenny justice either. I mean, that's a gorgeous lizard, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Move over, Komodo. We need more room. Get more perennial stuff. You know what I mean? Well, think about it yeah, this way. Yeah. You know, and I think in the next couple of years, lace monitors are going to become one of those things where uh, a lot of people are going to have them, and a lot of people are going to be keeping them, and they're also going to be breeding more readily. And then, what's the next big out there monitor? Like, yeah, we'd like to see people have success with croc monitors more, but man, we're the perennies. Like, you're telling me nobody. Yeah. Ever can get any kind of perenny? I mean, soon. Yeah. Didn't Some Jerry, he bred them? Swim. No, it was Komodos, I, right? I don't know. Dude, I think everybody got Komodos. Uh, like, even then, zoos. Like, every zoo got a Komodo. Nobody went and got a perenny? What the hell? Like, it's probably it's, hard to get. It's probably hard to whatever. get in Australia, you know? But, you know, but, man, yeah. Maybe yeah. one day we'll make it to uh, Alice Springs and see some bread lie and some uh, perennies just yeah, around I, out in the wild. Oh, Melissa, I got to get my shit in order so that I can go with you guys. Because if you guys go to rough scale territory without me, I will die. So, <laughs> me die. Keith. I will die. Yeah, we'll replace you with Matt. It will be me, I know you Keith, will. Rob, I know Matt. you will. Matt. <laughs> And it'll be a picture of a rough scale, and, and I, I will. I can see die. Matt, you know, thumbs I, up, fingers I, out. I, like, Yo, what's no. up, boy? Look at those birds. birds. Like, yeah, and dick. <laughs> we got to teach Matt to do smoky, though. No, no, you can't. You can't. You can't replace me like that. <laughs> it won't be the same without smoky. It will not. It's smoky. Yeah. That's why I told her I got to get I, – I, I can skip a few, but if they're going to rough scale territory, I'm out. Whenever, so, whenever yeah. I hear somebody say – sorry Oi. for everybody out there. Whenever I see hear anybody say cunt, that's exactly what I think of. That's immediate. That voice is what I think of. Like, uh, God. All right. Just like chuckling at work one day, and they'll be like, what are you laughing at? Oh, uh, yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> 
Uh, right, let's cool. end the show. God damn it. Okay. <laughs> where we get off the rails so far. Hey, Smokey, where can we uh, get in touch with Morelia uh, Boys <laughs> on radio.net? It's like, oh, I'm not prepared. <laughs> What's wrong with you, you weak little Smokey Jeez, man? Stop it. Stop it. Stop. <laughs> Stop. Uh, it's going further off the rails. Yes. Oh, oh right. God. <laughs> uh, good times, man. Good times. So. Uh, Absolutely. Keith, as always, Keith. pleasure. Uh, Anything you yeah, want to throw out there before we uh, cut you off or do anything like that? Contact info, anything that you got cooking baby-wise or anything like that you want to throw out there? Uh, yeah, I got a lot of bows cooking right now, and you know, so we'll see what happens come the fall. But, um, yeah, I mean, social media, really, Facebook, and just my personal page is really the only way to get a hold of me. And always willing to talk snakes. Anybody wants to talk snakes, give me a shout. Cool, awesome, definitely. I'm looking forward to having a barbecue with you guys as soon as this craziness stops. <laughs> no yes. kidding, man. No Done, already happening. <laughs> Oh, God. All right. So, Eric, want to run down your stuff, and then we'll jump off. Sure. Uh, Why am I the one? Why am I guiding this episode? What the hell has happened? I don't know. Worlds have turned on edge. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, MoreliaPythonRadio.net is our website. Um, You can check out our, um, um, if you're looking for some NPR merch, you go over Mm. to Teespring Store. That's uh, under NPR Store. Dash two. I don't know why that is, but anyway. why, why is there two? I don't know. <laughs> there was another NPR, I guess. I don't know. So there better not have been. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram. You can download the show on uh, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Uh, yeah, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find Marilla find us. Radio. Yeah. Um, and um, as far as myself, E.B. Morelia, um, just look for me there. Yeah, that's it. Um, cool. Uh, what I got is you can go to rogue-reptiles.com, also rogue underscore reptiles on Instagram, and rogue reptiles on Facebook.com. Uh, currently, there's a bunch of baby bread lie up for sale and a couple of caramel stuff left over from last year, maybe two years ago. So uh, there is some stuff going, and we are shipping out. Uh, uh, just going to keep an eye on that um, shipping window stuff. Um just in case uh, anything like FedEx gets overwhelmed or something like that with this whole COVID thing. Uh, but, yeah, hopefully uh, soon I'll be able to tell you about all the cool shows we'll be vending. <laughs> so <laughs> when that happens again, uh, other than that, we will say thank you all for listening, and we'll catch everybody back here next week for some more Rally of Python Radio. Good night.
sky for stars. 